Looking up in the sky Thanksgiving last year was different, right? If you gathered with anyone outside your immediate household, it was probably just a few people. Maybe you had turkey and pumpkin pie al fresco on the deck. This year, vaccinations mean more people feel comfortable flying, and they want to go see friends and family who live far away. So get ready. The airports are going to be crazy. Here's NPR's David Shaper. The early pandemic days of half-empty flights are long gone. We're seeing a lot of people very much, you know, looking to travel and fly uh, for Thanksgiving this year and make up for maybe staying at home last year. Vivek Pandia is a lead analyst for Adobe Digital Insights. He tracks airline booking data and says bookings for Thanksgiving are up 78 percent over last year and are even slightly higher than at this time in 2019. There's excitement around potentially, you know, being with family and friends for Thanksgiving again. So that's, you know, pushing up bookings, you know, pretty sizably there. But Pandia says as bookings rise, so do prices, with airfares up significantly from last year's pandemic bargains. In recent months, some airlines have had trouble handling the rapid recovery in air travel demand. Southwest, Spirit and American have all had operational meltdowns because they had too few pilots and flight attendants available to recover from bad weather. And each ended up canceling thousands of flights. Kathleen Bangs is a former commercial airline pilot who is now with the flight tracking firm FlightAware. And she notes that with winter weather coming, airlines need to have plenty of extra pilots and flight attendants on standby. Because it's one thing to have a meltdown at the end of October, but it's another thing completely if you ruin somebody's Thanksgiving or Christmas or make them miss it altogether. That is on a whole other level. American Airlines, which had the most recent meltdown, has now brought back all of its flight attendants who took leaves of absence during the pandemic and will have 600 new hires on board December 1st. In addition, flight attendant union spokesman Paul Hartshorn Jr. says American will pay flight attendants 150 percent their normal rate for working key holiday trips. And if you didn't call in sick for a certain period of time throughout the whole holiday season, they will in turn pay you up to triple pay, 300 percent for those trips. But Hartshorn adds that flight attendants continue to face a high number of incidents of verbal and physical abuse on flights. We've had flight attendants shoved, punched, pushed to the floor and hit their head on the armrest on the way down. Really, really serious injuries that we're dealing with here. On one recent flight, he says a flight attendant was punched repeatedly, breaking bones in her face. That passenger was arrested and charged by federal authorities. As the FAA is now increasingly referring these cases to the FBI and Department of Justice for prosecution. The FAA has now received more than 5,000 reports of unruly passenger incidents since January, and about three-fourths of them involving passengers refusing to wear masks. Another potential holiday travel problem is long lines at airport security checkpoints. TSA spokeswoman Jessica Maley says the agency is ready. They definitely know the times of day, the flight patterns, the passenger patterns that they see, and they they keep their staffing appropriate so that you don't see wait lines beyond what we can expect. But TSA employees must be fully vaccinated by November 22nd, the Monday before Thanksgiving. And as of last month, about 40 percent of them had not reported their status. TSA officials insist there won't be staffing shortfalls, though. They expect the actual number of unvaccinated officers to be small. And officers who do not comply will still be allowed to work while going through a period of education and counseling. David Schaefer, NPR News. Give him some cookies. Give him some chips. Give him what you want. Give him some Skittles. Give him, you know, some Skittles. He can give you Skittles. Yeah, he likes Skittles.
Lord, that's why he's stepping. Man, he cooking. Because I'll make him use his words. I don't just give him anything. I just make him use his words. And he cooking. Oh, he said us and them it's a concept that's taken on various forms for eons as we gear up for thanksgiving we take gratitude in having the resources to gather with food and the luxury of time to navigate its preparation let's remember that stress is not always about getting the perfect turkey and its accompaniments on the table hot and at the same time it may not even be about getting healthy and nutritious food on the table. As with everything about food, it's more complex than we can imagine. Priya Fielding Singh is here to discuss food injustice and how the other half eats. Hi, Priya. Hi. Tell us about this research project that um, took over your life for a very long time. Yeah, absolutely. So this research is at the heart of my new book, How the Other Half Eats. And the book and the research were really aimed at trying to understand why it's so difficult for families in this country to eat healthy and why in particular it's virtually impossible for low-income families to do so. And my reason for doing this research about food inequality, diet disparities across the U.S., came from, from really two places. So the first is that we have this wealth of epidemiological research uh, showing that there's a growing gap in the diets and nutrition between rich and poor in this country, where the rich continue to make gains nutritionally that are not met by their low-income counterparts. And this is a gap that's durable, it's growing, and it matters tremendously because of just how fundamental our diets are to our health. A poor diet is the uh, leading contributor to mortality in the U.S. It's responsible for half a million deaths every year. And so nutritional disparities are extremely consequential. But the second motivation for the book was that despite our best efforts to understand the drivers of nutritional inequality, our explanations for why we have this dietary gap have in many ways really fallen flat. Um, and the biggest explanation, the one that most folks listening in today will recognize is known as the food desert argument. So the idea that there are these spatial inequalities in people's access to supermarkets and grocery stores where there's healthy food, and that these inequalities are what are driving broader diet disparities. Food deserts are 100% a thing. There are differences in people's proximity as far as where they live to supermarkets. But the research shows that just because food deserts are a thing, it doesn't mean that they're actually the primary driver of nutritional inequality. So my question as a researcher was, what else is driving these nutritional disparities? And that's a question that my research and my book tries to answer. And it does that by um, drawing on the voices and experiences of 160 parents and kids that I spent years speaking with, four families in particular that I lived alongside and observed and, and tried to understand how their really different circumstances, the different hardships, barriers, and challenges that they faced shaped the, the diet that they were able to secure for themselves and their children. There is so much in your, I mean, your book is just packed and there's, you have so many stories. You spent a ton of time with each of these families. I'm just curious what it was like talking to so many different people 
about how they eat. And if it changed the way that you personally feel about food or eating or people for that matter. Yeah, I think, you know, it's hard to remember for me kind of who I was before I did this research, just because I've been interviewing and observing families about the food that they eat for so many years. But I, you know, some things that stand out to me about what I learned from this was that, you know, a lot of my work was really focused on interviewing parents and and trying to understand how parents made food choices for their families, for their children, and how the resources that they had at their disposal, often their financial resources, shaped those choices. And one thing that was really clear to me was that this belief or kind of understanding that a lot of society has that low-income parents, low-income families are ignorant about what's healthy, that they don't care about what's healthy for their children is just completely false. There was such a consensus across the families that I interviewed, whether it was families who were living in their cars uh, or families living in gated communities. These families, these parents, they understood on a pretty you know, similar level, what was healthy. Like no parent told me that they thought that soda or Cheetos were a healthy choice for their child. Everyone agreed that fruits and vegetables were a healthy choice. So what we don't have here is actually a crisis of education or knowledge about what's healthy. But what we do have is really different contexts within which parents are raising their children that fundamentally shape the meaning that food takes on to those parents. And for low-income parents who are raising their kids in circumstances marked by scarcity and financial insecurity, giving their kids a bag of Doritos, you know, a $1 can of soda is one of the few ways that they can say yes to their children on a daily basis, that they can show their kids that they love them, that they hear them, that they can honor their preferences. And so even though these parents know that a can of Dr. Pepper is not the most nutritionally sound choice, it's also a very emotionally nourishing choice for their children. And so what makes perhaps a little sense from a public health perspective makes a lot of sense from a psychological perspective if you take into account the really different context that parents are raising their kids in. And that's something that fundamentally changed how I thought about food was thinking about the kind of psychological, the symbolic, the emotional meanings that food takes on across class, across race, and how those impact food choices. Yeah, I was really struck by Letitia talking about how the sandwiches she was given as a child uh, raised in poverty were basically two pieces of white bread with um, luncheon meat, and that the sandwiches she finds herself making her children um, maybe made out of bread with more, that's more nutrient dense. And then whatever the star of the sandwich is, there's vegetables like tomato or lettuce. And for her, this reveals a whole different change in status. Absolutely. Yeah. So Letitia grew up uh, pretty poor in a low-income family and she made it uh, into college, made it into the upper middle class. And for her, food and feeding her kids was really a way that she showed that she had made it. It was a way that she identified as someone who had achieved social mobility. And so she couldn't imagine feeding her kids the food that she herself had 
been raised on because to her that would have reflected in some ways like a decline in social mobility and and she wanted her kids to be squarely in the upper middle class and she wanted them to eat like it and to act like it and she wanted them to grow up with certain values around food that that she herself had not grown up with but had to had to fight for and and had to kind of go through a socialization process to to learn about and to eat as she got older and and moved up in class status. Why is it so difficult to accept that the parents of kids with, quote, poor outcomes work just as hard as the parents of kids with, quote, good outcomes? I think we live in a country that is really outcome-driven. When we evaluate uh, kids' well-being, their health, we look at metrics like weight, height, BMI. We don't really pay attention to what's going into those outcomes, to the work, to the inequalities that shape those really different outcomes. Uh, When we talk about something like the childhood obesity (laughs) epidemic, or we talk about disparities in children's weight, We make the assumption that kids who have overweight or obesity, their parents don't care about feeding them as much. Their parents are negligent about their diet. We don't consider that perhaps those parents are trying just as hard to raise healthy kids who like fruits and vegetables, who are active, but that they have the deck really stacked against them in a way that makes that impossible. Um, and kind of on the other end of the spectrum, we look at wealthier parents, parents with a lot of privilege who, you know, maybe their kids' BMIs are in the more normal weight range. And we look at them and we, we applaud them and we say they're doing a great job and they're feeding their kids the way that they should be. And we don't think about all the privileges and advantages that those parents have in order to uh, secure nutritious food for their family. It's really a fascinating book. And it's, It's just so detailed and the stories are, the stories allow you to see what a complex conversation this is to have since every family is basically a culture onto itself. Thank you so much, Priya. Thank you so much for having me. Here, watch this. Ah. Mockingjays. That's great. Back home, we use them to signal all the time. The national reckoning over race and history is now playing out in the world of birds. At issue, the racist past of the 19th century naturalist and illustrator John James Audubon. NPR's Melissa Block reports. Let's go out in the Maryland woods, surrounded by golden tulip trees and the earthy scent of spicebush. Oh my gosh, it's just such a beautiful fall day. The colors are finally turning. I've come here with Lisa Alexander. I'm the executive director of the Audubon Naturalist Society. Well, for the short term. For the short term, because the Audubon Naturalist Society, which serves the D.C. region, recently voted to drop Audubon's name. No question, Audubon was a brilliant artist. He created gorgeous, life-size paintings of hundreds of bird species, so vivid in detail they seem to fly off the page. But also... He was a white supremacist. He was an owner of slaves. He was a desecrator of skulls. 
of Native American and Mexican people. All this has drawn new scrutiny as this country re-examines its history. Should we have known earlier? I think that's possibly true, that we should have known earlier. But now that we know, we have to act. Once you know it, you can't unknow it. And so, Alexander says, the soon-to-be-other-than-Audubon Naturalist Society will take the next year or so to choose a new name. The only thing I can probably say for sure is we won't name ourselves after another human being. Alexander's organization is independent of the National Audubon Society, which has hundreds of chapters around the country and hasn't yet decided whether to keep or drop Audubon's name. Jamal Nelson, the society's chief diversity, equity, and inclusion officer, says the national group will take the next 12 to 18 months to hear from stakeholders on that. But he says the conversation has to be broader. I don't want us to stand really close to a pixelated painting and focus on one little dot. There's so much more work than that. Which means, says Clemson University ornithologist J. Drew Lanham, absolutely change the name, drop Audubon, but don't stop there. To leverage John James Audubon into something greater than he ever could have been is to take a bitter history and to make some sweeter future out of it. To make identity and inclusion central, he says, to the mostly white, homogenized world of conservation. As a black man, Lanham is constantly aware of how race and his passion for birding collide. I can have a really high-end pair of binoculars around my neck. I can have a high-end scope on my shoulder. And if I walk through the wrong neighborhoods, then bad things can happen to me. This spring, Lanham's piece in Audubon magazine titled What Do We Do About John James Audubon helped kick this national conversation into high gear. Lanham wrote, Audubon's racism is the albatross rotting around the necks of those who would hold him in reverence. It is past smelling foul and beginning to reek. That piece drew outrage from some who revere Audubon. Lanham is undeterred. Use this moment, he says, to widen the mission. And maybe it's going to serve birds better, but it's also going to serve humanity better. On the wall of his tiny writing studio in South Carolina, Lanham has hung an Audubon print. It shows a quartet of songbirds, bright yellow-breasted chats, two in flight and two tending to their nest, which is festooned with wild roses. Beauty and bitterness, Lanham says, a reminder that genius can wrap itself around a rotten core. Melissa Block, NPR News. Also, allow me to apologize to other families formed through transracial adoption because I am deeply sorry that we suggested that interracial families are in any way funny or deserving of ridicule. November is National Adoption Awareness Month, and even though there are millions of adoptees across the country, many say they often feel left out of nationwide conversations about race. Over the last couple of years, those conversations have reached new heights and depths with the deaths of George Floyd and other black Americans, anti-Asian violence, and migrant crises at the southern border. Transracial and transnational adoptees we spoke with shared how it's particularly hard for them to express their full range of emotion about these issues. Here are some of their stories. My name is Sunny Reed. I'm 37 years old. I live in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. I was adopted from Korea into a white family. When it comes to these racial movements, I feel like... Asian adoptees fall in this weird liminal space where we're not Asian enough and we're not white 
philosophy that doesn't allow you to participate fully or feel comfortable participating fully in these like racial type justice movements. And I think about how that complicates my own personal ability to identify as a person of color. My name is Hannah Jackson Matthews. I'm 29 years old. I live in Lancaster City, Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. Uh, I'm a biracial black woman who was adopted by a white family. Over the last year, I've been thinking about the other transracial adoptees who were probably experiencing what I experienced um, with the death of Michael Brown. Of like this, what does this mean for me? and for my family as a transracial family and kind of this culture shock experience of seeing someone who looks an awful lot like you being harmed in systems that typically being raised in white families and in predominantly white spaces were taught to trust. Um, my name is Annie Stefanko. I am 17 years old, currently living in Rosemount, Minnesota. I was adopted from Guatemala City in Guatemala, and I'm currently a part of a white family. When George Floyd was murdered, I felt pretty kind of like confused and also alone because I had no one to talk to really, and I did struggle understanding how it affected me as a person of color because growing up I didn't have a chance to connect with other Latinos so it it was pretty difficult. I also felt pretty upset about the border crisis. I've seen a lot of articles where you know people from my country are migrating to the U.S. and, you know, sometimes I wonder, like, is my birth mother at all traveling to the border? Is she still in Guatemala? Like, is she safe? Sometimes I find, like, my parents just don't understand, like, race or my ethnicity and in the past I have like talked to them about a little but they kind of don't believe what I'm saying if that makes sense I had one situation where I was in a parking lot driving a night with my mom and a police pulled up and I felt really scared in that moment and I felt like something bad was going to happen to me and I told my mom and she's like you know, stop worrying. She just didn't believe how I felt in that moment. So since then, I've been pretty not open about race or anything with them. This is Sunny Reed. I think there's a lot of confusion about who we are, if we're adoptees or not, until we actually disclose our positions. I feel like there's like a hesitancy too, because it's like once we ad admit that we're adopted, it's almost like, well, we don't know the actual Asian experience. This is Hannah. 
I think adoptees fit into this conversation in the way that we're able to offer a very unique racial experience. We've been studying whiteness our entire lives, especially, yeah, especially ones that have been raised in a white context, because we live in such close proximity to it and there's not maybe the barriers that would have been provided had we had parents of color or parents that were of our racial communities of origin. There's kind of this insider look to yeah to whiteness into the white psyche and I think that's really what we need to be focusing on when we see these larger um, issues of unrest is how can white people be kind of looking introspectively into what this means for them not only um, persons of color doing that and so I'm, I'm hoping that because of transracial adoptees unique experience of race and uh, their access to white spaces that they would be able to maybe usher that conversation. Now keep in mind that I'm an artist. Black artists in Tacoma will soon have an opportunity to win $15,000. CanCax's Maiwa Aina has more about the new Tacoma Art Museum grant. Two years ago, Artist Award Manager Victoria Miles' Black History Month project showed the museum had hardly any Black artists in its collection. Given that Tacoma is one of the Blackest cities in the region, Miles says that's a problem. It's a turnoff for a lot of people in the community to just come and see yourself not be reflected on these walls. I don't think it's fair to Black folk in the city. And so, as an institution, we are acknowledging that our collection <laughs> has excluded and is missing Black artists. The new current grant will be a radical departure from the way artist awards are typically given. The funds are unrestricted and the community will have a say in who is selected, Miles says. How do we reimagine how we are engaging with Black artists and Black folk in Tacoma? Rather than getting, 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 how are we truly giving and seeing something prosper and grow? Because that's what's most important, right, is that we want Black folk to feel comfortable being here and to want to be here. And to do that, Miles says, they have to listen to their voices. Maya Aina, KNKX News. Come on, people. Did anybody read the book? Guys, it's Frankenstein. <laughs> a recent Seattle Times story revealed a conflict at Ballard High School that began with Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. In an assignment last fall, a white teacher asked her class to reflect on this question. How does oppression, neglected potential, and trauma affect a person's identity. The ensuing class discussions made at least one student, who is Latino, very uncomfortably complained to his teacher, pointing out that the murderous creature of Frankenstein was repeatedly compared to oppressed black and brown people in a way that drew a line from oppression to criminality. After an unsatisfactory response, he persisted, and then the Ballard High School principal got involved, moving the student to a different class. The student complained to the Seattle School District, and months later, the district released a long report. It concluded that the teacher and principal created a hostile environment and that the principal's actions were retaliatory toward the student. But the district has not taken a position on whether the teacher's curriculum or the way it was taught was itself racist or in violation of policy. We want to zoom out a little bit. This whole thing got us thinking about Frankenstein's creature and the many ways he's been read and misread over the more than 200 years since his creation, and also why this story persists after more than two centuries. Julie Carlson is a professor of English at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and the author of a biography of Mary Shelley and her family. Thanks for joining us this afternoon. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. 
because there have been so many versions of this story told, I wonder if we can go back to the book and if you can kind of give us an overview of what happens to Frankenstein's creature along the way. What are some of the major plot points? Yeah, so, um, you know, on one dark and stormy November night. (laughs) (laughs) Much like this, yes. Right. uh, Victor is, you know, looking, watching uh, the creature come alive. And he, instead of feeling joy and, you know, and realizing that all humanity will be grateful for his invention, he's terrified and he races out of the room, abandoning his creature. Uh, for the rest of its existence until much later. Uh, and so the creature who is a baby, right, but eight feet tall, is left to its own devices. You know, and obviously its appearance frightens everyone it meets. And so, in the, and so every human encounter um, is, uh, is of anger and hatred. And so, you know, it's really important for him that, as he says, as he says, when he finally encounters Victor, first of all, he covers Victor's eyes so he won't be distracted by the apparent monstrosity of his appearance and says, hear my tale, right? Listen to my story, which Victor does and gets as moved by. But basically what the creature is saying is, um, I was born benevolent. Misery made me a fiend. Um. Many people call the creature just Frankenstein. Some say Frankenstein's monster. Right. You say Frankenstein's creature. Why? It's not a monster. That's the, you know, I mean, that's the point A, is that it was born. I mean, it is understood to be a new species, um, but it is creaturely and sentient. The creature has been understood in so many different ways over time. Can you describe some of those? Yeah, I mean, so many different ways. I mean, one, you know, right after the second edition, 1823, in 1824, uh, it doesn't matter who George Canning is his name, but he's he's a parliamentary figure. He's arguing in the House of Parliament. This is at the time of um, abolition and the slave debates, right? Canning refers to Frankenstein, he doesn't name it, as as in a certain way, a warning about too quickly emancipating the slaves on the same logic of a, of a not fully human creature. Right. So that's, I mean, that's one wild reading, but then, especially in the sort of sixties and seventies, U S sixties and seventies in academic circles and so on, the creature was celebrated as a spokesperson basically for, for, all kinds of disenfranchised groups. In the 1960s and 1970s. Yeah, 1960s, 1970s, yeah. Of racially disenfranchised groups, you know, there was big, you know, really important reading in the 90s about the creature in relation to, you know, lesbian sexuality. There's stuff about, you know, there's a whole book. I mean, there's more than one, but I mean, there's a book called Black Frankenstein by Elizabeth um, Young uh, for Black power, not, you know, not racist ends. So, you know, the, the history of, of sympathy for the creature as expressing what are the consequences of not being recognized, not being acknowledged as human, as benevolent, as, as, as good, uh, has a long history. This look at oppression and trauma and all of the things we're discussing uh, was written 
by a 19th century European woman who lived in a time of slavery and colonialism. So whatever it has to say about oppression and trauma comes through that that lens, that sort of privileged white lens. As we teach the book now, more than two centuries after it was written, how are the teachers you know thinking about how to address that fact? On the one hand, this text is very is very sympathetic to what happens to people whose stories, narratives, and uh, physiognomy is not the dominant one. On the other hand, this text is located in racist thinking, right? And Mary Shelley is not um, free from that. So she, you know, and I think that's what we as, as teachers and people who love literature or at least value it, need to foreground. So I, I think, um, you know, the question that the teacher asked is a valid question. It's been posed, you know, toward, toward Frankenstein, the text, often. I mean, that it is partly trying to show the consequences of trauma, of abuse. I mean, childhood abuse, yeah. of abandonment. You can't develop a creative and a playful mind. But the student in this case was not wrong to say, well, you know, we don't, if we're making a line between brown and black folk or, you know, formerly disenfranchised people and criminality or homicidal rage, this is, this is dangerous. It's a brave, it's a brave thing, he said, especially if he wasn't heard in the classroom. Yeah. You know, we are losing the whole history that in some ways her text gestures toward, but in other ways it suppresses, which is a whole other history of other kinds of joy and ways of well, ways of surviving that are not about homicide and criminality. They are about telling other stories, you know, because literature. The whole point of literature is, is to show the complexities of experience. But one has to also recognize that for most years in U.S. curriculum, certainly at the university, but also in high schools and public schools, the curriculum has been dominated by one tradition. And therefore, the complexity that is literary writing or a literary sensibility has itself perpetrated a racist history. And a very, you know, and that that has to be acknowledged. Dr. Carlson, thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I, I always love to talk about Mary Shelley and important books. Uh, I was the first, one of the first. My first day was state trooper coming, putting me in the backseat of the car, and meeting the other black kids with six of us. And then seeing all of those parents and also KKK members having signs and throwing cans at us, spitting at us. We lived in the threat of death every day, every day. So I was just lost in this vacuum uh, between integration and segregation and, and racism. That was my childhood. I was angry for years. Angry. Now to growing support for a Sacramento High School vice principal targeted by racist attacks on campus. There are black students here. We're not going nowhere. 
Tonight, students at West Campus High School are demanding action after repeated racial attacks against Dr. Elise Verscher. It comes as the Sac City Unified Superintendent finally breaks his silence more than a week after the most recent threat. CBS 13's Laura Hafley is live at the West Campus tonight with what happens next, Laura. Well, there was a rally outside of West Campus High School earlier today. One person's presence was clearly missing, and that was Dr. Elise Verscher herself. Her attorney tells us she's currently not working. She's out on leave due to stress, but still, the community of her supporters were out here demanding justice. Enough is enough. Demands from a crowd outside of West Campus High School Tuesday were simple. First, punish the students involved in racist violent actions aimed at Vice Principal Dr. Elise Fersher. The second demand, fire Principal John McMeekin, who attended the rally but refused to speak. Tomorrow, make sure you line up and you ask the question to your principal since he doesn't want to come up here and answer today. The final demands support a black student union and hire more black teachers. How many black teachers are in West Campus? Zero. I'm devastated. CBS 13 first interviewed Dr. Elise Verscher last week after racist, violent threats were made to her in front of her parking spot and on social media. The actions carried out by her own students. This is the first time in my career that students have been emboldened enough to call me a black. For the first time Tuesday and after our repeated requests for an interview, Sacramento City Unified School District Superintendent Jorge Aguilar released a polished video. We're deeply upset about what has transpired within our district family. Following the message, Superintendent Aguilar showed up at the rally promising action. We are not going to tolerate any kind of racism, any kind of hatred, not just on this campus, but in any campus. Black Student Union member Nevaeh Turk still fearful to walk through these doors, hoping the students responsible for hate are caught. The fact that they are targeting her means that they're targeting us. We did ask Superintendent Aguilar what repercussions could look like for students if they're caught. He says when it comes to the school's investigation, they're looking at potential suspensions uh, and expulsions. And he says when it comes to the police investigation, which is separate, criminal charges are on the table. Why haven't you learned anything? Tonight, South Lakes Mayor is calling the just announced federal civil rights probe into the city school district a costly distraction. All new at 10 o'clock, J.D. Miles will explain to you this investigation comes after several recent high-profile, racially charged incidents. South Lake's mayor came out tonight and suggested that the school board's opposition to the teaching of critical race theory is behind what he views as pure political retaliation with this federal probe. But some parents with students in Carroll ISD insist there is a race problem here and it needs to be addressed. She had to sit through a class of social studies where there was a video about 9-11. Shiza Mosin recalls an experience her daughter had as a fifth grader in a South Lake Middle School. And it was pretty much insinuated that Muslims are terrorists. That episode five years ago <laughs> was followed by a video that emerged in 2018 of Carroll High School students chanting racial slurs. I definitely notice that there is a lot of privilege here in sabotaging growth. 
Mohsin applauds the news that the U.S. Department of Education has opened an investigation into race and gender discrimination complaints. Dr. Stephen Waddell is a UNT professor who worked as a superintendent in North Texas for 20 years. He explains what Carroll ISD can expect from investigators. The district's going to have to comply with a lot of, of uh, work uh, to provide documents. Um, there's a possibility that there'll be some interviews. Carroll ISD issued a statement saying only that our district is fully cooperating with this process and diligently pulling all documents requested. But Southlake Mayor John Huffman took issue with the investigation, posting that, I don't think I am alone in wondering if this investigation is retaliation for our voters rejecting the pro-critical race theory CCAP plan, especially since the threat to involve the federal government was made by some CCAP supporters to the media. CCAP is a cultural competence action plan that the district tried to impose last year, but was blocked by court action from parents who called it reverse racism. Shiza Mosin says that move silenced the voices of 39% of the district students who are minorities. I will tell you that I am somewhat relieved and hopeful that there is a level of accountability here. How long this probe will last is unclear, but they average 180 days, which means we could get results in six months. In South Lake tonight, J.D. Miles, CBS 11 News. H.U. Howard University. I was riding here and I, I heard on the radio somebody call it Wakanda University. But it has many names, the Mecca, the Hilltop. After a long protest of students sleeping in air mattresses or on air mattresses and intense demand better living conditions at Howard University, well, that is finally over for now. Students complain to school leadership about flooding, mold, mice infestation, other health hazards and dorms that need immediate attention and uh, have needed for a while. But yesterday, school president Wayne Frederick released a video statement after reaching an agreement with the students. The progress can only be achieved by coming together as one Howard, one Bison. As we close in on the Thanksgiving holiday, I'm encouraged and excited about the work we have accomplished and the work we will continue to do together to reinforce our beloved Howard University. We look forward to working collaboratively to address concerns and build a culture where all are heard. All right, so got a shout out to those students who are stood strong for what they believe in. Joining us right now is one of those students, Shannon Hill, a junior at Howard and president of the NAACP chapter there. She was one of the protesters, and thanks for joining us this morning. Very proud of you, first and foremost, young lady, for standing on your grounds in principle and standing for other students out there. Uh, first, the, the most important question for me is, how did it feel to actually sleep in your own bed last night after that 35-day standoff? <laughs> um, I didn't I, I didn't even get to go home to my own bed last night. I had to crash at one of my friends because going home, I had to I didn't have a blanket or a comforter because it'd been at Blackburn and I was too <laughs> tired to wash it. <laughs> So I just had to go use my friend's blankets, like didn't have any towels or anything washed. Maybe I'll sleep in my own bed. Well, at least you got, 
Well, you got a good night's sleep last night. Look, look once again, this is this has been exhausting. I'm pretty sure it, it took a toll on you guys. What was this experience like for you? It's hard to describe. Um, Ten days, five days, two days, where you're sleeping, and you don't. It's not like having a bedroom. You're sleeping with you know, at least 50 other 20, 19, 17, 18 year olds who are like in this extremely stressful environment, you're sleeping with one eye open mm -hmm. because at any moment the police can come and remove you as they have attempted. Um, at any moment, the school can say, you know what, I'm tired of y'all on my lawn and come to, mm. you know, to pick up the tents. Billy Holiday, I sing your blues. Bet your life against me, and I swear to God you're losing. Motherfuck the cops, we still singing for St. Louis. Motherfuck the cops, we still singing for St. Louis. Motherfuck the cops, we still singing for St. Louis. Racially restrictive covenants were used for decades to keep black families out of white neighborhoods. In 1948, a landmark U.S. Supreme Court decision stemming from St. Louis made those covenants unenforceable and 20 years later, they were outlawed nationally. But in the city of St. Louis, there are restrictive covenants still tied to about 30,000 properties, although most homeowners have no idea. St. Louis Public Radio's Corinne Ruff reports on how those covenants kept neighborhoods segregated and why they still matter today. Julia Allen lives with her cousin Sheila in a one-story brown brick house with a metal gate out front. It's about a half a mile east of where they grew up, in the Ville neighborhood in the 1950s. She sits in her living room on a recent muggy morning, telling me what it was like back then. It was a happy place. I call it my small town, okay? Even though it was a segregated neighborhood, we had everything that we needed within walking distance of that small area. Allen knows more than most about how racially restrictive covenants prevented black families from moving outside that segregated area. She gives tours as the co-founder of a nonprofit called For the Ville, but she never thought to check the records on the home where she lives with her cousin. Out of curiosity, I looked them up for her and filled her in on what I found. And there is a covenant. <laughs> Sheila, you got a covenant on your house. <laughs> I'm not surprised. What now? You have a racial covenant on this house. Which means? Which means you weren't supposed to buy this house. <laughs> Sheila bought the home well after the 1948 U.S. Supreme Court decision ruled racially restrictive covenants unenforceable, and the Fair Housing Act made them illegal 20 years later. By the time she moved in, most people had forgotten about these old documents. But there are covenants still on the books. Isn't that something? Allen's home is one of tens of thousands of properties across St. Louis with a racially restrictive covenant. They were commonly put in place throughout the first half of the 1900s, peaking in the 1920s. Today, they're buried in land records at City Hall, often on hard-to-read microfilm. In most cities across the country, it's impossible to tell exactly how many covenants exist because most records aren't digitized and record-keeping practices vary. But University of Iowa history professor Colin Gordon stumbled across an index of all the restrictive covenants in St. Louis. At his home office in Iowa City, he sifts through boxes filled with carefully organized papers. 
So this is the, the document that we discovered that enabled us to get into it all. This is just kept by one of the title companies. Gordon and his team used that list to create the first comprehensive map of racial covenants in St. Louis. The map highlights the two key ways they were used. One strategy focused on subdivision covenants. Developers commonly attach these to deeds in new neighborhoods before the first house was even built. You know, they're aspirational and exclusionary, but there are no African-Americans living here. This is in stark contrast with the covenants put on existing homes near the Ville neighborhood. There, a real estate group urged white homeowners to sign petition restrictions. These prohibited people from selling or renting to black families in the future. The petition restrictions say it's to the mutual benefit of signers to, quote, preserve the character of the neighborhood. These are much more sort of defensive and frantic because the African-American community is growing. And, you know, the White Realtors Association and white homeowners are frantically trying to figure out how do we stop it. Gordon says it matters that these covenants are still on the books because they're largely to blame for the racial wealth gap that exists today. He says they helped create the Del Mar Divide and they laid the groundwork for other discriminatory practices such as zoning and redlining, which came later. Driving around Julia Allen's north side neighborhood, we pull up to an unassuming brick duplex at 4600 Lapidie Avenue. Okay, let's see, slow down a little bit. This is the Shelley house. This is the house that started it all. J.D. and Ethel Shelley, a black couple, moved to this home in the 1940s. Soon after, a white homeowner across the street sued based on a covenant. But with the help of the NAACP, the Shelleys took their case all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court and won. That's the landmark 1948 civil rights decision I've mentioned. The court ruled that states could not enforce racially restrictive covenants. It's historic. And most people don't even know about the Shelley House or restricted covenants or the laws that, you know, that, that made the change so African-Americans could move further north and outside of the Ville, outside of Mill Creek, outside of pruitt Igo. All of those were segregated African-American neighborhoods, but the court decision had unintended consequences, too. It spurred large-scale white flight. Without racial restrictions, white families abandoned the north side for the suburbs. The mass exodus drained the tax base in North City. Property values collapsed. Later, many black families left, too. Today, most of the homes that had covenants on them north of Del Mar are vacant lots. In southwest St. Louis, where new subdivisions were built with racially restrictive covenants from the ground up in the early to mid-1900s, white people bought the homes, and the neighborhoods have largely stayed white. Longtime St. Louis Hills resident Rick Pellink has always been interested in the history behind the charming neighborhood's pitched roofs and pink sidewalks. I mean, the architectural beauty of all these homes are all different. No, no two homes are, are alike, and they're just just beautiful homes, you know. He says the aesthetic of St. Louis Hills was created by design. When developer Cyrus Crane Wilmore plotted out the subdivisions, he attached a long list of restrictions. Sunrooms can only extend eight feet, no chickens or livestock, no commercial businesses, and no homeowners or renters other than those of the, quote, Caucasian race. Palink used to be a trustee in the neighborhood, and he says over time, all the restrictions lost their authority. They're just not relevant, so there's no purpose on updating them. It's a historical document, you know. Not everyone thinks of it as just historical, though. Clara Richter, another St. Louis Hills resident, pages through her home's deed and finds the associated covenant. Oh, goodness. 
she's heard of restrictive covenants before, but she didn't notice that language when she and her husband signed the paperwork to buy their home about five years ago. It hadn't occurred to me that they would still be officially there <laughs> because, you know, it's 2021. <laughs> Richter says it's disorienting to see it attached to her home's deed, but she says that feeling is necessary. People should experience that discomfort and then do something about it. You know, history can be ugly, and we got to look at the ugliness, too. We can't just say, oh, that's horrible. Um, you know, but I feel like it should be, like, in a museum, maybe, or in school books, but maybe not still a legal thing attached to this land. The impact that racially restrictive covenants have had on neighborhoods in St. Louis is far-reaching, and undoing their damage will take a long time. But Richter hopes amending the covenant on her home will be a first step toward making the neighborhood a more welcoming place for all people. I'm Corinne Ruff, St. Louis Public Radio. Niggas hate now! Shit! So I tell you, niggas are breaking your house? You want to save your money? Put it in your books. Because niggas don't read. Just put the money in the books. Shit, books are like kryptonite to a nigga. <laughs> Here's a book. No! No! Not a book! No! No! Across the St. Louis region, there are formal attempts to remove books from several school libraries. So far, at least two titles have been temporarily removed from the Wentzville School District. As St. Louis Public Radio's Kate Grumke reports, it's part of a growing national effort to ban books. At school board meetings across St. Louis, people are speaking out against what they call pornographic books. It's happening in the Rockwood School District. Why are these books here? Lindbergh Schools. You can take all these books off the shelf right away. And the Francis Howell School District. There is a line. The only question is where we draw that line. Some parents, including Katie Rash, wore matching yellow t-shirts to the October 21st Francis Howell Board of Education meeting. They spoke out against many different issues, including the books in school libraries. Why are our schools and school libraries giving this graphic sexual content to our kids? Minors Thank are you. minors. Your Thank time you. time is up. In Francis Howell, like many public school districts in St. Louis and across the country, community members have the opportunity to file a formal request to remove a book from school libraries. Then a committee is formed to read the entire book and decide whether or not it should stay on library shelves. It had been seven years since the Francis Howell School District went through this process, but this year five books have been challenged. David Brothers is Francis Howell's Director of Curriculum and Assessment and Chairman of the District's Committees that Consider Book Challenges. He says the discussions can provide transparency. It can be a positive. The negative, honestly, is it is taking up so much time that takes away time for doing other great things for kids. Altogether, there are requests to permanently remove at least 21 books from school libraries across St. Louis. This is part of a national trend. This September, there was a 60% increase in requests to remove books from libraries compared to this time last year, according to the American Library Association's Office for Intellectual Freedom. Director Deborah Caldwell-Stone says this can violate the Constitution. The Supreme Court has held that efforts to restrict books in school libraries can rise to a First Amendment violation when the decision is made to remove books simply because the school board or members of the community don't like the ideas in the book. Many requests to remove books are being organized by parents in private Facebook groups. They're also being encouraged by a national organization, 
Andy Wells is the president of the Missouri chapter of No Left Turn in Education, a national group that opposes critical race theory and what Wells calls racial indoctrination in schools. Wells says they're also against, quote, sexualization, sexual exploitation, and sexual confusion of children in K-12 schools. He's been working with parent groups across Missouri to make a list of books he says contain pornography. They were individually trying to challenge these books themselves, seeing it as a local problem. And when I talked with them, I said, okay, why are we fighting this locally when it's a state law? This should be a state fight. Of the 21 books being challenged in the St. Louis area, two-thirds are written by authors of color, or authors who identify as LGBTQ. Most of those books are also on Wells' list, but he denies this effort is about identity. This is about pornography, period. Many of the books that Wells and other parents are focusing on do include passages that describe sexual assault or deal with sexuality. But Caldwell Stone says these books have a place in school libraries. Especially older adolescents are grappling with changing bodies, changing feelings, exploring things like gender identity and sexual identity, and they desperately need good information. Felia Davenport, a multiracial black woman. Wow! Hey, yo, drama, hold up, sir. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Stop the motherfucking record. Right. I want you to pondy replay, drama. Pondy replay. <laughs> <laughs> Give him one more chance, man. Run that shit the fuck back. Felia Davenport, a multiracial black woman, has a daughter in second grade in the Lindbergh School District. It would have been nice to have read these books to go, I'm not alone. Or, okay, look what she went through. And she didn't just survive, she thrived. Davenport has read all but two of the 16 books being challenged in Lindbergh. She says it's essential for her daughter's identity to be represented in the school libraries. You know, my daughter is a woman of color who can pass. I'm not going to have her family be removed or erased from this school district or from the library. Back in Francis Howell, a committee just voted 11 to 1 to recommend keeping the book All Boys Aren't Blue by George M. Johnson. Now committees will read the next four books that are being challenged in the district. I'm Kate Grumke, St. Louis Public Radio. Look at me. You think I'm going to spend the rest of my life in this slop house? Watch it, Goldie. No, sir. I'm going to make something of myself. I'm going to night school, and one day I'm going to be somebody. That's right. He's going to be mayor. Yeah, I'm going Mayor. Now that's a good idea. I could run for mayor. A colored mayor. That'll be the day. You wait and see, Mr. Carruthers. I will be mayor. Today, for the first time in its history, Boston will inaugurate a newly elected mayor who is not a white man. Michelle Wu, who is Asian American, is the first woman and the first person of color elected to lead the city. Some people see this as a major turning point. Other people are kind of disappointed. NPR's Tovia Smith explains what's going on. Hope was high this year in this time of racial reckoning with three black candidates running that Boston might elect its first black mayor, like most of the nation's 30 largest cities have already done. Please welcome the 55th mayor of the city of Boston, Kim Jamie. One of the black candidates even had the advantage of running as acting mayor after temporarily inheriting the job when former mayor Marty Walsh left to become President Biden's Secretary of Labor. And yet, neither Janie nor the others even made it to the final two. I got home and I cried. I cried my eyes out because I don't know the next time we'll see a black mayor in our city. 
At Janie's farewell address last week, supporters like Danny Rivera were wistful, especially, he says, because of Janie's personal history in Boston. As a girl in the 70s, bust into white neighborhood schools where blacks were pelted with insults and rocks, then as a teenage mom struggling to make it when she was all but written off. I believe that it's lived experience that matters the most. And what really separated Kim from every other candidate, you know, that's, that's all super powerful, and I thought that we missed the moment. Yeah, very disappointing, for sure. But not surprising, says 20-year-old student Nia Ashley. It's just one of those things where it feels like, what else is new, you know? Indeed, in the preliminary election, the three black candidates combined got about three-quarters of the vote in areas of the city with the least white voters, while in the whitest areas, they won only about one-quarter of the votes. I mean, the data speaks for itself, and it's troubling. Especially, says former state representative Marie St. Fleur, for a city still straining under a longtime reputation as racist. For those of us born or raised in Boston and who lived through some of the, you know, darker days, the fact that we, we blinked at that moment is sadness. It was for me, at what point in this history of Boston will we be able to vote? And I'm going to be very clear for a black person in that corner office. But to be sure, there were other factors and fault at play, says Reverend Eugene Rivers, a longtime black community leader. We can only play the race card so many occasions, right? I mean, black leadership failed to produce success with an incumbent. We failed. Now, that's not on white people. Black leaders are already talking about taking lessons from the successful campaign of incoming Mayor Wu to improve their own political organizing and to increase black turnout in future races. Some are also calling for a more coordinated strategy to coalesce behind a single black candidate to avoid splitting the vote, as happened this year. But others bristle at the idea of expecting a black candidate to drop out of a race because there are too many of them. Civil rights activist Imari Paris Jeffries is one who also feels grief that a black candidate didn't make the cut this year. But while important symbolically and psychically, he says, a candidate's race should not be a determinant factor. In this anti-racist discourse, I don't think we're going to find identical twins of our experience in order for them to even be able to empathize with me. It's just not possible. And so I think we have to start creating a, a larger tent and find common ground together. It's a theme incoming Mayor Wu has struck throughout her campaign and also while attending Janie's farewell address. I have heard and want to continue acknowledging the disappointment of many in our community who wish to see representative from the Black community And we will continue working to meet this moment to take on systemic racism and the barriers that have been perpetuated for far too long. And Boston voters will be watching, as will Congresswoman Ayanna Presley, who endorsed Wu in the final. She earned my endorsement, but she earned it um, because she is prepared to be honest about the disparate outcomes across every issue. And I expect that the black community will hold her accountable. 
For her part, Acting Mayor Kim Janey insists her short but historic term did push Boston forward as she approached every issue through a lens of racial equity, as she put it. Still, there's a lot more work to do, she says, when it comes to all of our isms in Boston and around the country. Tovia Smith, NPR News, Boston. This the city of Chicago. The head of Chicago's main police union says he's resigning this morning from Chicago police. Fraternal Order of Police President John Catanzara made the unexpected announcement yesterday at a police board hearing about a recommendation to fire him. WBEZ's Chip Mitchell followed yesterday's hearing and joins us now. Good morning, Chip. Morning, Mary. First, can you tell us about this police board hearing and the dismissal charges? Yeah, it was it was going to be a three day hearing about 18 incidents before Catanzaro was elected the union's leader last year. Most of these were Facebook postings alleged to be biased, obscene or disrespectful to police superiors. For one posting, Catanzaro was accused of bias against Muslims. He was reacting to a video of a woman being stoned to death. He wrote, quote, savages, they all deserve a bullet. And Catanzaro would filed criminal char- uh, criminal reports against police bosses. One was against Eddie Johnson, the CPD superintendent at the time. Catanzaro accused him of breaking the law by joining an anti-violence march on the Dan Ryan area. What happened yesterday? Well, an attorney for the city said Catanzaro breaks rules and thumbs his nose at superiors just for attention. Catanzaro's attorney called him a whistleblower who speaks up for other rank-and-file cops. But Catanzaro testified it was pointless to deal with police bosses through the proper channels. He said he wasn't calling all Muslims savages, just the ones who follow Sharia law. He also called the dismissal hearing a show with a predetermined outcome. And then his announcement that he's quitting the force. And then last night he goes back to the union office, Marion, and records a video pointing at Mayor Lori Lightfoot. If they had their way and this kangaroo court was willing and able to proceed and they did end up firing me, it would only embolden this mayor even more and demoralize this membership. There was no way that the mayor could ever be allowed to utter the words that I was fired. This police board hearing was supposed to last till Wednesday, but if Catanzara is resigning or retiring, as he says, it's over, so he can't be fired from the Chicago Police Department. What about his job as union president? Well, Catanzara will get to stay on as FOP president for now. Um, he's not up for re-election until 2023. He's also talking about running for mayor, Mary, trying to unseat Lightfoot. This comes as Catanzara leads the union battle against her mandate that city employees get vaccinated. He had a victory this month when a judge suspended that mandate. That's the COVID vaccination mandate that's been suspended and officers uh-huh. can get tested. Uh, Chip, you've reported about Catanzara Kat- since before his fraternal order of police election. How important is this announcement that he's retiring from Chicago police? Well, he had 50 misconduct complaints, eight suspensions, dismissal attempts by two police superintendents. A lot of cops, especially white ones, they love his confrontational style. And at least one way Catanzara has delivered for officers the summer his team negotiated contract terms with big retroactive paychecks. But Catanzara, his embrace of Donald Trump, the lack of any black cops on the union's 28-member board, 
He's a big turnoff for many African-American officers. And a lot of cops were disgusted when Catanzara, I, I interviewed him, and he defended the U.S. Capitol rioters. The other day I was talking with a longtime West Side beat cop. Um, he's a white copper. He says Catanzara drives a wedge between the police and the public. And he says that's the last thing we need during a gun violence surge. And some people behind the consent decree, Mary, the, the city's police reform agreement, they say getting rid of Catanzara is important for the legitimacy of the city's police accountability apparatus. Thanks for that update. WBEZ's Chip Mitchell. Reading, Pennsylvania. Democrat, good morning. Good morning. Thank you for C-SPAN. I just wanted to comment on the Rittenhouse case. Just think, if the police there would have did their job and took a rifle away from a 17-year-old who was illegally carrying one, we, these two men would be alive today. And you wonder why people of color see white supremacy everywhere. Because if he would have been a young 17-year-old of color, they would have just took that gun from him right away. So that's all I want to say about that. Thank you. There was never any question whether Kyle Rittenhouse shot and killed two men and injured a third in Kenosha, Wisconsin in August 2020. Aged just 17 and too young to legally own the military-style weapon he used, he was charged with the murders of Anthony Huber and Joseph Rosenbaum. Prosecutors said he had gone out looking for trouble. The defence said Kyle Rittenhouse feared for his life. The verdict, not guilty of murder. Not guilty, indeed, of any of the five charges he faced. Our correspondent, Nomia Iqbal, reports from Kenosha. The defendant will rise and face the jury and hearken to its verdicts. A dangerous vigilante or someone acting in self-defence. After 26 hours, the jury decided Kyle Rittenhouse's fate. We, the jury, find the defendant, Kyle H. Rittenhouse, not guilty. The 12 men and women of the jury accepted the teenager's claim he killed out of fear for his safety. Somehow, someway, those 12 jurors again found that he was innocent. Outside court, the political divisions this case has caused were clear. If you attack me, I have the right to defend myself. That's what Kyle was on trial for, and that's what Kyle has been found acquitted of. Okay, so you're telling me if two guys come up to you and it costs you, you can't defend yourself? That's what was on trial today. Judicial bias that was ex exhibited in this case is repugnant. Yes, sir. There is no way yes, in a law, and a land of law, where a person can shoot three people, kill two of them, and be acquitted. There's just no way. The shooting happened against the backdrop of nationwide protests over racism and police brutality following the murder of George Floyd. In Kenosha, another black man named Jacob Blake had been shot by a white police officer. And on the third night of riots here, Carl Rittenhouse entered the city. He said he came to provide security. That same day, Joseph Rosenbaum had been released from hospital. Hours later, their paths crossed at this crucial spot, a used car dealership. It's next to a main road and opposite a medical centre. It's about a six-minute walk from the courthouse. Video footage shows Joseph Rosenbaum running after Carl Rittenhouse into the car park. 
Moments later, he was shot and killed by the teenager. Rittenhouse then killed another man who chased after him, thinking he was an active shooter. A third man survived. Police later arrested the teenager and charged him with murder. At his trial, there were tears. Challenges. You're telling us that you felt like you were about to die, right? Yes. But when you point the gun at someone else, that's going to make them feel like they're about to die, right? That's what you wanted him to feel. No. Shouting by the judge. Pardon me? That was before the princess Don't get brazen with me. And a controversial defense by Rittenhouse's team in regards to the shooting of Jacob Blake. Other people in this community have shot somebody seven times, and it's been found to be okay. And my client did it four times in three quarters of a second to protect his life from Mr. Rosenbaum. I'm sorry, but that's what happened. This not guilty verdict is seen as a referendum on an issue that polarizes Americans beyond Kenosha, and that is the issue of gun ownership. For many conservative groups, Carl Rittenhouse is now seen as a hero, but for many liberal groups, he is the face of a gun culture out of control, and they're worried by being cleared of the charges, what it might mean now for future protests. Can Americans turn up with a gun, but not face any consequences? Nomia Iqbal in Kenosha. And just before we recorded this podcast, Nomia gave us the latest from outside the courthouse. Well, right now things are calm. There are still people holding signs and showing exactly what they feel. It's so politically divisive. Every now and again, people drive past in their cars tooting their horns, saying, free Kyle, and we love the 25th Amendment in reference to the right to bear arms. The National Guard is on standby here in case there is any violence because, of course, Kenosha doesn't want a repeat of that very violence that we saw last year, which ultimately led to the deadly encounter involving Carl Rittenhouse. And he's also spoken tonight. He has said he is remorseful and he just wants to get on with his life. You know, this is a case that pulled together so many explosive issues in America, so the right to own guns, protests, racial injustice. There are some civil rights activists who have said that if Rittenhouse had been a black teenager who had shot at three white men that night, police would have behaved very differently. So you've got that element. But then also uh, the family of one of the men that Carl Rittenhouse shot dead that night, Anthony Huber, have said that this now sends this very dangerous message that armed civilians can show up in any town and justify shooting people. For many pro-gun groups, this is a victory. And so that divide, it's just going to get deeper. And I think Carl Rittenhouse has become the face of uh, quite a few movements in this country now. Nomia Iqbal. Now, it's a statement of the obvious that this has been a highly charged case and politically divisive across America. President Biden has appealed for everyone to express their views peacefully and says the verdict must be respected. Speaking after the verdict, defence lawyer Mark Richards said there was relief for Kyle Rittenhouse and his team. Say that we were relieved would be a gross misunderstatement. And Kyle is not here. He's on his way home. He wants to get on with his life. He has a huge sense of relief for what the jury did to him today. He wishes none of this would have ever happened. But as he said when he testified, he did not start this. You know, I've been listening and reading. You've been reading now? I read. 
I've been reading about your leaders. Reverend Al, Mr. Do, Sharp Tone, Jesse. Keep hope alive. That's fucked up. Keep hope alive. Hey, that's fucked. Don't talk about Jesse. Although the jury is dismissed until Monday, an attorney for one of the three defendants accused of killing Ahmaud Arbery is again making headlines today. Kevin Goh likened a large turnout of black clergy in support of Arbery's family to a public lynching of his client. It punctuates a week of rhetoric and headline-making comments, and WABE's Lisa Hagen has been in Brunswick all week. She's with us to catch us up on what's happened. Lisa, what's been the takeaway, really, of the week? We heard Travis McMichael, who is accused of, of shooting the shotgun and that killed Ahmaud Arbery, he took the stand this week, which we were not aware was going to happen until the moment that it happened. Uh, and the story he told was about living in a neighborhood with lots of reports of property crime. Uh, his defense attorney also walked him through talking about the training Travis had had while serving in the Coast Guard. He was a trainer for boarding officers, which means he could talk a lot about law enforcement concepts like de-escalation, probable cause, use of, use of force. And on the day he's accused of killing Arbery, uh, he said he was trying to put his young son down for a nap and that Greg McMichael had started shouting his father about, you know, the guy is here uh, and said, get your gun. Throughout all of this, the prosecution is poking holes in the testimony and the memory that Travis McMichael has. Uh, Talk about that element. When the cross-examination happened, we heard a lot about the sort of differences between initial statements that Travis had made to the police versus what he's been saying today in court. Um, We also heard a lot about the neighborhood Facebook page where residents of the area would, would share stories about alleged crimes. And the prosecution zeroed in on some responses Travis had written about some of these posts like, quote, playing with fire on this side of the neighborhood and, quote, I hope they catch the vermin. And the state also circled back to Travis's Coast Guard training, saying that he should have known about the Fifth Amendment, the fact that he didn't really have any authority to stop or arrest Ahmaud Arbery, and because he didn't know that he'd committed a crime, uh, said that he was in no way required to stop and answer questions. And the prosecutor talked him through all of these decisions that led him to get out of the car instead of just following behind, deciding to leave armed. All of these moments uh, where the McMichaels might not have ended up in, in the place that they were eventually. There is the issue of black clergy, and this keeps coming up day after day. There have been requests for mistrials, multiple requests um, from the defense because of uh, high-profile black preachers in the audience. Kind of talk about that element and and how it's playing into this uh, trial. Yeah, the reason that keeps coming up is because of one man, and that is defense attorney Kevin Goff. He represents Roddy Bryan, who's the neighbor whose video actually, you know, surfaced and, and made this whole case really explode. He, he's actually been accused by the prosecution at this point of intentionally saying inflammatory things about Reverend Al Sharpton, about Reverend Jesse Jackson, who've been sort of supporting Ahmaud Arbery's family through the trial. As part of this, there was a huge response yesterday of hundreds of Black faith leaders who showed up outside the trial. Every single time the defense lawyer has brought this up and tried to argue for a mistrial, uh, the judge has thrown it out. 
I think the quote that made the paper today was comparing this to a modern-day lynching, um, really inflammatory language coming out. Yeah, that's right. And again, that was immediately rejected by the judge and the prosecution made it clear that they believe it's a defense strategy of sort of inflaming the discourse around this in order to eventually argue for a mistrial or argue on appeal uh, for Roddy Bryan to get off. WABE's Lisa Hagen with us this afternoon from Brunswick. Lisa, thank you so much for the time and uh, catching us up on the trial. Thanks, Jim. Uh, I was in a house last night that was on my own, but I didn't, it didn't destroy all my clothes at all. But you know what happens when fire dashes through. They get smoky. The only thing I could get my hands on before leaving was what I have on now. And... Uh, Wasn't, it isn't something that made me lose confidence in what I'm doing because my wife understands and I have children from this size on down and even in their young age, they understand. I think they would rather have a father or a brother or whatever the situation may be who will take a stand in the face of any kind of reaction from narrow-minded people uh, rather than to co- compromise and later on have to grow up in shame and in distress. judge has exonerated two men convicted in the assassination of Malcolm X in the Audubon Ballroom in Harlem, February 21, 1965. This came after the Manhattan District Attorney's Office and the Innocence Project conducted a nearly two-year investigation that uncovered key evidence was withheld at the trial of the two men, 83-year-old Mohammed Aziz and Khalil Islam, who died in 2009. On Thursday, Manhattan District Attorney Cy Vance apologized in court to Aziz and the family of Islam. Vance also called out former FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover. We have obtained dozens and dozens of reports from the FBI and the NYPD's Bureau of Special Services and Investigations. These records include FBI reports of witnesses who failed to identify Mr. Islam and who implicated other subjects and suspects. And significantly, we now have reports revealing that on orders from Director J. Edgar Hoover himself, the FBI ordered multiple witnesses not to tell police or prosecutors that they were, in fact, FBI informants. Many of those documents were exculpatory. None of them were disclosed to the defense. That was the Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus Vance speaking through his mask. 83-year-old Mohammed Aziz also addressed the court. He was jailed for almost two decades for the killing of Malcolm X before being released on parole in 1985. He's been fighting to clear his name ever since. Listen carefully, because he, too, is wearing a mask. The event that brought us to court today should never have occurred. Those events were involved the result of a process that was corrupt to its core, one that was all too familiar to black people in 2021. While I do not need this court, these prosecutors, or a piece of paper to tell me I'm innocent, I am very glad that my family, my friends, and the attorneys who have worked and supported me all of these years are finally seeing the truth that we have all known, officially recognized. 
Mohammed Aziz speaking Thursday in a New York courtroom. He was exonerated for his role in the assassination of Malcolm X. The latest investigation into Malcolm's murder in 1965 was spurred by the Netflix documentary series Who Killed Malcolm X, which was largely based on research done by Abdurrahman Mohammed, an independent scholar and historian who spent decades investigating the life and death of Malcolm X. Abdurrahman Mohammed joins us now. Welcome back to Democracy Now! You were in the courtroom yesterday. Can you describe the scene? You have two men who served each more than 20 years in prison for the assassination of Malcolm X. Um, one of them died, uh, Khalil Islam, uh, more than a decade ago. But Mohammed Aziz stood there in the courtroom. Talk about the moment. Describe the scene. Amy, it was a beautiful uh, fall uh, afternoon. It, the weather couldn't have been better in New York. Um, when we sat down, uh, we had to process what we were witnessing. I, I, it was surreal. It was almost out of body uh, to be sitting there and watching uh, an exoneration, not a pardon, an exoneration after well after after uh, long after a half a century a half a century of a man who was still living a man present 83 years old and to watch uh, the government admit that these brothers were sent to prison for a crime they didn't commit uh, was, uh, it was stunning. It was stunning. It was breathtaking, honestly. I mean, it just took my breath away. And a lot of this is based on your research, a lay historian who just devoted your life to uncovering what happened. Can you talk about who Mujahid Abdul Halim is, who spoke to a reporter um, uh, yesterday briefly to The New York Times in favor of the exoneration and his role in the assassination? Well, Mujahid Abdul Halim, back in those days, uh, uh, the winter of 19. 65 was known as Talmadge Hayer. At the time he was arrested, he was known, uh, the name that was uh, put on his jacket was Thomas Hagen. Uh, but he is one of the confessed assassins who was caught at the scene. One of Malcolm's bodyguards shot him uh, in the leg, and he was literally uh, stomped almost to death outside the Autobahn ballroom. He was convicted for the crime along with uh, Muhammad Aziz, who was Norman 3X Butler at that time, and uh, Khalil Islam, Thomas 15X Johnson. Um, he, you know, he is the one who gave us the names of the real assassins. And Amy, I, I, would, I would say this, that it was uh, our 
Revelation, the revelation that I published uh, in 2010 of the identity of al-Mustafa Shabazz, William X. Bradley, that revived this entire investigation. Before that, and before his name appearing in Manning Marable's book, uh, crediting, crediting that revelation to, to me, the little uh, <laughs> independent scholar here in Washington, D.C., it completely blew the lid off this whole case, revived it from the dead, literally from the dead, and uh, that material finds its way into who killed Malcolm X, and we have what we have today. And uh, I'm appreciative to the lawyers, David Shaney and uh, Barry Sheck, for acknowledging that in, in the courtroom. Uh, Talmadge Hayer filed this affidavit in 1977 and 78, where he named his four accomplices. Uh, it was an affidavit that was ignored by the criminal justice system. There, there it was, laid out in black and white, their names, you know, how they carried out the assassination, how they planned it. Law enforcement never, ever, ever made any attempt to arrest those men. But talk about who William Bradley is and how this was suppressed for decades. That's right. William, he's called in Talmadge Hayer's affidavit, William X. Uh, William X. Bradley uh, was a lieutenant in Muhammad's Mosque Number 25 in Newark, the temple where the assassins hailed from. Um, he was, a, you know, he, he was a street thug. He was a, a bank robber. He was very proficient with a sawed-off shotgun, which is the reason why he was uh, selected to carry out the assassination of Malcolm X, because they knew he could accomplish the task. Um, long criminal record, especially after Malcolm's assassination. Uh, he lived a life unmolested in Newark. He was never approached by law enforcement about the assassination of Malcolm X. He did spend uh, many years in prison for other crimes, but not the, uh, the killing of Brother Malcolm. And did you get a chance to talk to him? Did not get a chance to talk to him. I mean, uh, there's no way in the world I would have approached that man's house by myself. The truth of the matter is that what I did is really the work of law enforcement. I can't walk up into a, a dangerous felon's house and say, you know, uh, why did you kill Malcolm X? Why did you murder Malcolm X, right? You need, <laughs> you need a team, you need security. And by the time, you know, uh, we was able to put together the team for who killed Malcolm X, where I, you know, have proper security and be able to make that move, uh, unfortunately, uh, he passed away in the middle of production as we were on the cusp of visiting his home there in Newark, New Jersey. Talk about the FBI uh, informants and others who were not identified at the time, suppressed by J. Edgar Hoover, this was raised by Cy Vance in the courtroom. This is absolutely stunning. Uh, but not when you think about what an evil uh, individual J. Edgar Hoover was. Uh, J. Edgar Hoover was perfectly okay with allowing two innocent men to rot in prison uh, for 20 years, was supposed to be for the rest of their lives. Uh, yes, we know for a fact, and have, have known for quite a while, that there were nine undercover FBI informants in the Autobahn ballroom that day. Uh, they filed reports in which they described uh, the assassins 
to a T, especially uh, William Bradley, the shotgun killer. Uh, they described him from head to toe, exactly what he looked like. It's right there in the FBI documents. They had this uh, material like the next day, February 22nd, they knew what the shotgun assassin looked like. They were receiving information that this came from Newark. They knew all of this, yet Jagger Hoover, to protect his assets, uh, just denied uh, the district or the prosecutor, denied them uh, access to uh, these witnesses who could have exonerated these, these men and um, kept them from wasting away all of those decades behind bars. As Ivan said in court, we now have reports on orders from Director J. Edgar Hoover himself. The FBI ordered multiple witnesses not to tell police or prosecutors that they were, in fact, FBI informants. Many of those documents were exculpatory. None of them were disclosed to the defense. We want to end with Amin Johnson, who spoke to reporters shortly after his late father, Khalil Isham, who died in 2009, was exonerated for killing Malcolm X. Bittersweet. Um, emotions running everywhere. Um, the fact that my father and my mother weren't here, are not here alive to see this and to uh, experience um, the exoneration is painful because they suffered a lot. They suffered a lot. Um, I believe that their deaths was a direct result of the stress and drama and trauma uh, and post-traumatic stress that this whole situation has caused on them. So I can't say that I'm completely happy because they're not here. And I think that the, the effects of it um, remove them from our lives. So that is Amin Johnson, who spoke to reporters shortly after his late father, Khalil Islam, and Mohammed Aziz, who is still alive, were exonerated in court yesterday in New York. Abdurrahman Mohammed, we thank you so much for being with us and for your devoted work to who killed Malcolm X, the independent scholar, historian, journalist, writer and activist, widely regarded as one of the most respected authorities on the life and legacy of Malcolm X. Context of white supremacy. COINTELPRO, indeed. We did read Geronimo Pratt, his autobiography this year. Lots of the same type of information. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. What it is, how it works, the system of racism, things we can do to put racists out of business immediately. Uh, today's date, Saturday, November 20, 2021. So I have been told we should be here uh, tomorrow global sunday talk on racism uh it'll be 3 p.m eastern 2 p.m central 12 noon pacific uh we'll be here tomorrow uh we should have folks different parts of the world i'm interested tomorrow because in austria 
Uh, we normally have, uh, I think African 1884 has frequently been with us. He's been in that part of the world for some time, even though he wasn't born there. Uh, but just this week at first, they announced that they were going to have lockdown for all of the folks who are not vaccinated in Austria. And apparently they had such an increase in COVID-19 cases that they just said, forget it. Everybody, regardless of lockdown status, is on lockdown, regardless of vaccination status. Everyone is on lockdown. And as of February 2022, it will be mandatory that you be vaccinated in Austria. So looking forward to discussing uh, all of the latest updates and all the other information news that's taking place around the globe. Again, that'll be tomorrow, 12 noon Pacific 3 p.m. Eastern Global Sunday Talk on Racism. Uh, let's see. Number to dial if you have thoughts, questions, uh, counter-racist suggestions to share. 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, let's see a few things and then we will get to the callers. Number one, we have a lot of PSAs, public service announcements that are incorporated within our counter racism. One might say that, hey, towards the production of justice, anyone who is talking about counter racism, uh, about working against white supremacy racism, that is also a public service announcement or community service, either way you want to think about it. Anywho, also one of our PSAs of late has been no unnecessary travel. Now, one of the big so-called holidays is coming up in a couple days. I've been saying, I've been saying for months, tell people way early. It looks way too crazy. Kyle Rittenhouse is free. Folks in Georgia probably get off too. It's been mayhem for two years now the airports and everywhere else short staff and all the rest of it and then the vaccine cards and everything gonna chill if we can't drive and get together if you have to participate in all this madness anyway but if you can't hop in your vehicle and drive or if they can't come and pick you up and vice versa and you all hang out and do whatever you do if it can't be done uh, with meager exercise expenditure of time and energy Nope, we will have to postpone it. We can get online, we can call, whatever, and we'll rendezvous next year and it'll be even better, you know, or we can rendezvous at another time. It just won't be so-called Thanksgiving. Uh, that report, first one that we heard, they said airports will be crazy. Now, I don't know what that means. That almost you could say is a metaphor because people say crazy and they, you know, mean all kinds of things. Uh, all I can say is all the excuses that they gave being short staffed, more people are flying now because they're vaccinated and they've been holding off. So they say it seems like it's even more people traveling now than it was in 2019. All of that into consideration and the weather as it starts to get colder, if it ends up snowing or being ice on the runway or something of that nature, like. Be mindful of all of that for this week and as I said going all the way into 2022 be mindful I would encourage no unnecessary travel it's just not worth the risk 
let's see uh, the segment the word privilege was used a bunch throughout the different reports that we heard uh, this evening they started off in the segment about food uh, and they talked about the importance of what you eat that's been emphasized a number of times we heard our Bay Area mom in the lead into that segment where that was just yesterday she was talking about one of her clients and cookies skittles potato chips which is almost what we heard in the segment uh, we heard different parents talking about what they ate for lunch growing up white bread deli meat like bologna or you know processed ham or whatever it is having that and some Cheetos for lunch that's probably I was, I was thinking millions but that might be but I suspect that probably millions of people uh, ate something very similar to that for lunch for years and or still eat something very similar to that for lunch if not worse because I've seen sometimes it'll just be like candy a soda you know uh, that'll be like potato chips and a soda and we're ready to ride or french fries and a soda and we're ready to ride so or chicken nuggets that's another on the super popular list but I mean that is so common and just talking about how uh, it is systemic remember that t uh, term obesogenic environment from Judith Finlayson's book she was a guest on the program earlier this year but the places where they warehouse non-white people black people in particular they're not going to put you someplace where you can have lots of healthy fresh fruits and vegetables for lunch like they're going to put you someplace where you can have skittles and flaming hot cheetos and maybe a carton of newports that's what you'll have for lunch shack soda maybe get you some diabetes in there super important in them talking about that this is beyond kind of a uh, blaming individuals for the choices that they make we even had people who before they were talking about food apartheid uh, and not having access to grocery stores and they were calling them activity deserts as well because you don't have any spaces parks bike lanes uh, yoga studios where you could go and exercise and walk the track maybe do some hiking go for a swim do some community yoga and none of those options and no organic produce again we got Skittles and Newport cigarettes for the Negras. Next, uh, when they talked about the segment on renaming the Audubon Society, I was even pausing, like, wait a minute, wasn't Minister Malcolm killed in the Audubon room uh, in Harlem? Like, woo. Anyway, uh, Audubon Ballroom. Anyway, with the segment on renaming the Bird Society, uh, one, there's an Audubon Seattle of Society, literally almost a straight line from my current residence. Uh, it's probably a mile. Maybe I'll look it up before we go off the air, but I think it's a mile. Like you could, I could walk to it right now, 20 minutes maybe. Cute little quaint cottage, and they've got all the pictures up, probably by Mr. Audubon. Uh, and all the rest of it I uh, should go in and see if they have a diversion equity and inclusion officer if they don't I'll see if I can apply um, but they said that Mr. Audubon white man that he painted all these great pictures of birds and that's wonderful uh, but he also desecrated skulls owned slaves <laughs> 
delectable Negro, like he should have mentioned. Like, what do you mean desecrated skull? See, we got all that about grave robbing uh, and necrophilia. So many examples uh, of this wrought throughout the history of white supremacy. A lot of those skeletons and what have you thieving the carcasses of non-white people, victims of racism, even within all of that. Yeah, he was a white supremacist and yeah, it's such a shame and we'll have to get a new name and all that. But wow, he was a genius. Sometimes genius is wrapped around a core of disgustingness still gets classified. I noticed that so many different times it'll be a white person. It doesn't matter what they've done. They can be talking about Ted Kaczynski. Uh, they can be talking about uh, Eric Rudolph, like any number uh, of white people. And, and it'll still be, wow, what a genius. Wow. Probably Elizabeth Holmes as well. She's on trial right now. Probably her too, but it'll be, what a genius. Shame they couldn't apply all that brain power to something, you know, constructive and something else but they'll still be classified as a genius super intelligent white person uh, let's see the segment on the adopted non-white children uh, again reminded me of Dorothy Roberts black female her book shattered bonds she was a guest on the program in 2000 well many times but she was on the program in 2010 specifically to discuss that book and she talked about how child welfare in the U.S. is specifically intentionally designed to make it easier for white people to adopt, abduct non-white children for their benefit. Get through this process and get as many little, you know, mulatto, negro, throwaway babies as you possibly can. Uh, you heard in that segment. uh <sighs> They said that the non-white transracially adopted children that they are left out of national conversations movements. I thought that was another metaphor. But then they also said that they have difficulty expressing themselves uh, because of the environment that they grew up in. I thought, wow, now that's kind of so you feel on the one hand left out of the conversation, but then you're also having difficulty articulating your thoughts confusion that's what it sounds like and again I don't even know what that is I didn't get an invitation to the national conversation on racism and incidentally even if you're just talking about the cows context we've talked about this repeatedly over the years uh, we actually had a black male on Mark Riding where his mother-in-law adopted a white child uh, and then we've had a number we had a gay white man uh, who uh, adopted a black child and was there uh, for the birth with the biological mom. Uh, we've had uh, non-white uh, so-called Asian uh, female. She was adopted by white parents in Wisconsin from Korea. Like we've covered this from lots of different uh, dimensions over the years. So they have not been left out of the conversation at the cows. That notwithstanding, um, they said in the segment that they didn't feel prepared and that when they attempted one of the non-white adopted females, she said that when she attempted to talk with her parents about racism, white supremacy, she said that her parents either didn't understand or didn't believe her. Now I thought now, wow, now again, everything the default is that white people are ignorant. They just don't understand. They're not aware. They have all this, the billions of pounds of privilege 
uh, but they're just so dense and stupid and ignorant and unaware that they just can't get it. That is not what is happening. Now, when we get to they didn't believe you now, that's getting closer to it. Now, that's where they usually we use that term. They're gaslighting you. All of this is deliberate practice of white supremacy, racism. And I mean, you're telling me these are your adopted parents and they can't even keep it real with you about racism. It's not like she said she was coming to indict them as being racist, just talking about racism being a problem. They're like, eh, I don't see it. I think it's you. Maybe get a new hairdo. Maybe that's what it is. I think you misread like really that right there. And we've heard that consistently uh, from folks in adoptive, you know, situations, but tacky does not get any better than tacky and shows consistently. You're not even willing to help your child. So-called understand and figure out what's happening. Doesn't get any worse. Uh, let's see. They now in that segment, they have, happened two times I should have had I had to re, I should have did the rewind several times so in this segment they spoke with a non-white female who identified as a biracial black woman I'm not sure I've heard that before nor am I sure what that means a so do you have a white parent do you have a non-black parent and if so, most of the time, I would say unanimously, those people that I've heard that are the product of that, they don't describe themselves as a biracial black woman or man or male female. They just say I'm biracial. There's a documentary called I'm biracial, not black. Damn it. I tried to get the uh, filmmaker on the as a guest on the program. I'll talk about that another day. But yeah, I just I had not heard that before. Like if that is going to be in vogue, like, wow, you will have all kinds of confusion. You might even have uh, our guest for this week on the program, Gail Lukasik. She might even be saying that she's a biracial black woman. I mean, who knows? Confusion. I said that repeatedly throughout that segment. Um, next, uh, the segment where Dr. Elise Verscher uh, she's the vice principal down in Sacramento where her white th uh, white students threatened her uh, and she was in tears. She said she never encountered white students who were so violent uh, and terroristic uh, just seemed to really disturb her, which I guess it would me too. Um, they said that the principal released a polished video in response. Now, you would have to break it down. Like, what does that mean? Like, did they go out and hire like Quentin Tarantino? to like give some really slick visuals and great makeup and graphic designs like a polished like Dr. Elise Verser she didn't seem like she had a polished video she was in tears she had her mask on still complying but I mean she was in tears she looked like she was in total trauma about this event she didn't look like she went and got all gussied up and you know let me get my makeup done let me get my pedicure and all that so I can look no victim of white supremacy they release a polished video and then they said the principal went to the rally in support of this victim but he didn't speak you're the principal you're supposed to be the leader you're the head spokesperson if you will for the school you didn't come with a statement prepared and even if it's something short that we're going to get to the bottom of this we support Dr. Verscher we support non-white student Black Lives Matter Black Lives Matter and then, you know, get off the seat. You could have just done that. You don't even do that. Doesn't get any better than tacky. 
uh, a listener submitted the report where they were talking about South Lake schools, the Carroll School District in Texas, uh, where they were talking about racism being a problem. And are you trying to force critical race theory on our students? And then some of the they said minority non-white students saying that, hey, racism is a problem here and we're trying to ignore it. Uh, there was a listener who wrote on social media and said, hey, didn't a uh, retired firefighter during some of his football coaching expeditions, didn't he say that he had some trouble when he visited that part of Texas, the uh, South Lake schools, uh, schools in the Carroll district of Texas? So I guess if retired firefighter, if he's listening, is that true or are we not remembering correctly? Because it seemed like he might have said that he took his took a team to Texas for a, like a big competition or something. And they had done some trashy, tacky things uh, in the hotel room or what have you and, and to try to bother his his students. Uh, and I think he said that they uh, whipped them soundly in the game, but they did have to deal with some tacky racism en route. Uh, but was that South Lake School, uh, the South Lake School District or any one of the schools in that area in Texas? Uh, we'll see. Yay or nay. Uh, next. And that was the segment where they said that they thought it was reverse racism, bringing up all this critical race theory. You're trying to practice racism against white people. Uh, we heard <laughs> pause for Chadwick Bozeman. Uh, that was his lead, uh, from his 2018 commencement speech, uh, at HU. Uh, but they had the report where they were talking about the students and their success in protesting the living conditions at Howard. I think any time because they've had a number of different schools, some in Louisiana and other areas, HBCUs, where they are not they don't have adequate uh, remodeling. They haven't uh, invested to up with just upkeep and infrastructure things on the physical campuses. And every time it should be, hey, we are being looted. They've had so many reports on so many mainstream white dominated outlets. HBCUs are not getting the funding that they are supposed to, that this has been happening uh, on a ritualistic basis for like years. Uh, and so you look at that in a cumulative manner and it wasn't just one. This was widespread theft. You look at that in a cumulative manner. There would be a reason why you don't have that sort of normal upkeep to the dorms and other facilities, plumbing, whatever else, technology that would probably be part of the reason for those problems. Uh, let's see. Next, they had the segment they were talking about the covenants in St. Louis. Uh, I just thought that was important when they talk about white people being ignorant about racism. They didn't say these covenants were on one or two houses or 10 houses or a hundred. They said tens of thousands of houses just in St. Louis, not even throughout Missouri. We had retired firefighter or not retired uh, a caller in Florida at the courthouse. He's talked about they got these records down in North Florida, too. I said I'd be hanging out in the archives all the time. If they're on tens of thousands of records and more, you can't have white people be ignorant. I even thought it was in that report. The black people who lived in the house where this language is in the covenant, they so-called own the house. They didn't know this. The white reporter, she got nosy. She went and looked, found the information and took it back to them. Now, that's another one who is more confused about white supremacy, racism, what it is, how it works. White woman who's a reporter knows more information about your house deed than you do. 
and specifically the details about racism. Uh, let's see. Now, we got another one where we did get the rewind. So when they got to the segment about tossing books out of the schools, also in St. Louis, The Hate You Give is one of those books. I would be right there, fist in the air. I am with you, brothers and sisters. No more The Hate You Give. It is total pornography and anti-blackness and black mis- um, black misandry. Let's get it out of here right now. In fact, let's uh, Fahrenheit 415 at Fahrenheit 451. Sorry. Let's burn it up right now. If they got e-copies, let's toss those out too. Delete, delete, delete. But in addition, they had Toni Morrison in there too, which I was not pleased about. Uh, but in that segment, they spoke with one of the non-white female moms, uh, Miss Davenport. She said she identified as a multiracial black woman. Now, we heard just today, biracial black woman, multiracial black woman. I'm I'm not accustomed to hearing these terms. I would hazard to say I've never heard someone use these phrases before. Someone identify my racial designation is a multiracial black woman or multiracial black man it would it would just be normally i am multiracial that's how i classify or i am black not both i certainly have never heard anyone say that i am a biracial white woman i am a multiracial white man i've never heard any of that i don't think i've i've heard biracial asian or multiracial Asian either. It would just be I'm Asian or I'm multiracial. Massive confusion and even so called black, whatever that means. I mean, wow, you're gonna like I said, you could end up having Gail Lukasik saying, I'm a multiracial black woman. Confusion and then the confusion was compounded, so the multiracial black woman said it's important for her daughter to have books like the Hate You Give uh, because her daughter is a woman of color who can pass. Now, we just had Gail Lukasik on the program. So I assuming, even though that's dangerous, I assume that she means she could pass for white. So we have a multiracial black woman saying that she has a daughter who is a woman of color who could pass for white, who needs this type of literature. Confusion, confusion, confusion. Are you married to a white person? Is your daughter who could pass for white? This woman of color who could pass for white, does she have a white father? All kinds of uh, confusion. And this is the person that we go to who's supposed to be, I guess, representative of a black person or the black perspective. And they had so much anti-sex in that segment where it was they were upset about critical race theory, but it was also it's pornography and we got all this, you know, LGBTQ and sexual content and all the rest of it. And one of the books uh, that they said was uh, all the boys aren't blue, uh, seeming like that's one that's going to be talking about some uh, contempt for gender and all the rest of it. If we're talking about racism, white supremacy, it's going to be very difficult if you're going to conflate and have these two things together and then have someone come out who sounds confused about her own racial classification. She's saying she's a multiracial black woman with a daughter who is a woman of color who can pass. And it's important that she have access to these type of books. Do you mean the LGBTQ books? Do you mean the hate you give? Do you mean all of it? It's important for her to have access to all of this content. And if so, why? I have no idea um, if my mom is so-called says she's a multiracial black woman and I, I guess, am pale enough that I could pass for white. 
and then we're going to read The Hate You Give where the main character is a black female who has a white boyfriend after her black love interest is shot and killed by a white police officer who looks a lot like the white boyfriend that I currently have like how is that going to be beneficial for me to go out and thrive as a woman of color who can pass as white confusion can say that word again um I guess the last thing I will get in uh there were lots of OJ Simpson connects this week uh Barry Sheck with the Malcolm X case and helping to get the exoneration he worked on the defense team for OJ Simpson and Joe Ellen Demetrius uh she worked on the defense team for Kyle Rittenhouse uh and was actually photographed in the courtroom uh snuggling up to support Kyle Rittenhouse's white mother every uh said it's not even six degrees it's one degree of separation oj simpson uh i will only say uh the minister the trial where two of the wrongfully convicted black males uh for the assassination of minister malcolm x mr uh, aziz and mr islam who has been deceased since 2009 uh, i do think it is important uh to have like a official acknowledgement of all kinds of deception in my view this is just more evidence of cointelpro where you have active uh deception on the part of the fbi nypd uh new york prosecutor's office uh to lie and conceal information and have two black males be convicted and have to serve all this time and be thought of and branded as killers when they know that that's not true and they willfully suppressed information all of that, why we should all be very, very informed uh, about Cointelpro and probably why we probably don't know the half about things that happened during the 1960s and 70s to all kinds of black people uh, who didn't do anything and were accused, arrested and all the rest of it. Although this is another one uh, where I do say like, man, uh, Mr. Uh, Islam has been deceased for over 10 years. It's always great to get your record cleared. And Mr. Aziz is still alive, thankfully, 83 years old. So I mean, right on that he got to see this, but I mean, race soldiers, they are extraordinary at waiting, waiting. We will free the slaves a hundred years after they've been dead. We will exonerate Jack Johnson a hundred years after he's been dead, that sort of thing. We will exonerate the Wilmington 10 50 years after they've been dead. Now, I guess, uh, for Mr. Uh, Islam, at least, he said, hey, I only had to wait 12 years, approximately. And Mr. Aziz, I actually did get to see this, but I mean, it is important. People who look at the archives like, wow, they lied about all this and locked these people up like, wow, that is a malware. Do they still do this sort of thing? All of that, I can see value from a counter racist perspective. But wow, the waiting uh, until whatever act that you carry out really has little to no impact on the people who were most victimized uh, and even in you know bringing justice to the killers who they said most of these folks as I would expect have probably passed on at this point so anywho uh, I do think that's important and I'll just contrast when I looked at some of the international press uh, like France 24 BBC CBC other parts of the world they had Kyle Rittenhouse front page white killer exonerated I didn't see Minister Malcolm X at all or it was way low like when they talk about things that are on the front page of the paper back page that sort of thing Kyle Rittenhouse was very top news yesterday like even in other parts of the world 
Top news. White teenage killer is free. Exonerated all charges. Minister Malcolm X that we lied about one of the most venerated figures in the world over the last hundred years and someone who his book is required reading all over the world and probably one of the books that they talk about throwing out of schools that the uh, the FBI, NYPD and prosecuting office lied about his assassination for over a half century and had two wrongfully convicted black males in prison to support this lie that didn't get nearly as much attention internationally probably even domestically I suspect I will pause there uh, the cows listener supported counter racist radio invest if you think the program is constructive hit the uh, PayPal button in the top right corner of the blog the address racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com uh, again paypal button top right corner you'll see the links uh, directly beneath for paypal venmo uh, and cash app we are on cash app cash dot app forward slash dollar sign the cows much obliged to all the folks who have invested uh, over the past 12 years I hope the program has been continues to be worthy of your time and energy if you could take about five minutes to share your thoughts observations that would be grand uh, if you have additional thoughts or questions just make sure everyone gets at least one chance to speak uh, and then you can share your additional thoughts uh, if you know you're in a noisy environment if you could use your mute button that would be super appreciated just to make sure we don't have a lot of unnecessary background noise uh, if in this one program I do request that we not use metaphors wow there were boatloads purposeful boatloads of them uh, they said darker days in Boston uh, I guess back when black people were treated worse whatever that would be uh, play the race card OJ Simpson again uh, and that was in Boston too saying that black people were playing the race card and saying that racism is the reason that they can't get a black mayor uh, push Boston forward uh, viewing things through the lens of racial equality I don't know what that means uh, they said that Cantazara, uh, former police officer in Chicago was thumbing his nose at superiors not sure what that means uh, blew the lid off lots and lots and lots of metaphors throughout uh, if we could be make an effort to be precise direct with our commentary that would be much obliged uh, I will prompt about the metaphors uh, race soldiers are just devastating uh, with using metaphors to both convey white supremacy racism and to deceive frequently they do both at the same time number again is 720-716-7300 the code 564-943-POUND press star 61 if you would like to participate long live Al Sharpton long live Al Sharpton and Jesse Jackson I should say I've been saying that for a long time too but long live Jesse Jackson long live Al Sharpton uh, folks who dialed in with a hand up line should be open proceed can I be heard victim in New Jersey yes sir how you doing Gus um okay uh Malcolm X um um, I do. Uh, I did 
share that on my my time feed. Um, I'm, 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 you know, again, um, I wish that uh, story would be circulated more because Malcolm X's death is also used to promote anti-blackness because most people either use his death to uh, accuse uh, Minister Louis Farrakhan or to point out they would say things like, you know, black people, we are our worst enemy. There were black people, black men who killed Minister Malcolm X. So, you know, with that evidence and that suppression, and for years, uh, Dick Gregory, um, some would say, um, you know, some of his... uh, some of his information will be classified as conspiracy theory, but he has always said that the government played the the um the largest role in the murder of um Malcolm X. Um I don't wanna hear and I and, and, and I'm gonna practice this. I will I will do no more ridicule or um any uh um you know um negative sayings about Al Sharpton. Al Sharpton has been used as a metaphor by white people. So um regardless if I feel that some of our appointed black spokespeople may not advocate for the black collective the way that I would like them to. I'm definitely going to stop my criticism of Al Sharpton and Jesse Jackson because racist, white supremacists use these two men as metaphors. They also use O.J. Simpson as a metaphor because once uh, Cal Rittenhouse was found not guilty, a lot of white people brought up you know, um, O.J. Simpson. <laughs> so I'm done with that. Um, speaking of uh, biracial, Paula Patton, um, if I'm not mistaken, mother is a white woman, father is a black man. Just this week, she says that she does not refer to herself as biracial. She says that her white mother um, told her as a child you will be seen as a black woman and that's what you should identify yourself, be prepared. So um, Paula Patton says that she refers to herself as a black woman and she feels that the label biracial is running from blackness. Um, These exonerations of deceased elderly black people whether it's Tulsa, Oklahoma, whether it's the recent exoneration of the two men that was accused of killing Malcolm X. I'm from the city of North. Um, The alleged shooters were killers, were from North New Jersey. Um, This is why I'm kind of, um, I'm, I'm not talking about reparations anymore, because I can see 
the same way that this tacky uh, late information came out that exonerated an elderly and a dead man, once there are a smaller number of people who are classified as black Americans, whatever you want to call yourself, black American, more, ADOS, whatever, once these group of black people are at a very small number. I can see that the the last five remaining black people in the country known as the United States will then get reparations in the same tacky form as they do with these 80 to 100 year exonerations. Um, anything else I have to say, I'll say towards the end. Thanks, Gus. Much obliged, sir. <laughs> uh, other folks who dialed in with a hand up, if you have commentary, proceed. Hello. Greetings. Oh, I'll wait. Uh, you don't have to. Go ahead, ma'am. Okay, thank you, uh, retired firefighter. It's um, Irie, and I'm going to trying to make it short. Um, so, Gus, the word I was trying to say last night was fungible. I was trying to uh, communicate to the lady that the supplies I put on the list were not fungible, meaning not negotiable for a quality art program, which basically means it can't be, they shouldn't be substituted, especially for something that isn't um, similar at all. Canvas is not paper. <laughs> so um, I wanted to recommend a book for the book club since um, uh, Mrs. Lack's grandson was on the program and you mentioned white women stalking families for uh, a long period of time. So I read a book when I was way more confused about uh, a family in the Bronx uh, that was being followed for 10 years um, by, I suspect, a, a white woman. And the um, name of the book is Random Family. And I think that would be worth looking into for the racism now, for sure. Um, it, it, was a, it was a tragic book. Um, so I want to make that recommendation. Um I noticed something in the uh something happening in uh in the advertising like I guess just the way they're advertising um the so called holidays now. They're making it 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 it's implied that it's including I suppose gay themes because um they had Kiki Palmer, victim of racism up there talking about Oh, red and green is boring, or red and white is boring. You know, it's not the holidays, it's the all the days. And everybody was in rainbow colors. And there was um, also a um, appeal, an appeal to so-called Hispanic people. There were some people uh, hitting pinatas, like during this, you know, like winter-themed commercial. But, but the main thing was people were in rainbow colors. Um, and I found it interesting. I'm like, okay, y'all had June 
they had, I think October was Gay History Month. And now this week is transgender, like remembering transgender death this week. So I'm just waiting for what they're going to do on for Christmas, you know what I'm saying, other than this commercial. So what I wanted to report last Saturday, and I was too tired, I went to a poetry reading for a friend of mine, black lady, and she read a poem about, she, she called it Passing for Black at a university she was going to. And because she considers herself not attractive, and and apparently other people have expressed it as well, she said her first day um, there, some a black guy she didn't know yelled out, like, oh, you should be raped, which is totally incorrect. And then she said later, two white guys were... Um, saw her and said aloud to each other what she could hear. Would you would you rape her? And I found it curious that rape came up twice. And I was wondering if it was true or not. I'm not saying it isn't, but I'm like, hmm, to like rape, not not sleep with her, but rape her, right? So one white guy says to the other, would you rape her? And the other guy's like, oh, heck no, like look at her. He was like, you know, if I was in front of a judge and the judge asked me, did you rape her? I'd be like, come on, judge look at her. You really think I did it? The judge would be like, nah. So I asked her what the reactions were um, when she read the poem outside of where we were. And she said that some black people got mad and left her reading. Um, And then I asked immediately, I said, well, what is the reaction when you read it to an audience that's only white? And there was a group of white women in the back of the room. Immediately, they piped up, oh, we love it. We just absolutely love it. And they were about to go into like a diatribe about it. And I just politely said, oh, I was asking her. And they got quiet. And then she said that the reaction is confusion. And I just wrote it down. I literally wrote it down. I was like, "That I want to share that um, because I don't know what they would be confused about. So she asked me to share a poem, and and I didn't. I tried to redirect in a constructive way um, about a poem I wrote about um, a relative experiencing racial showcase and the classification confusion. And I said, you know what, there was one point in time in which um, I thought that it would just be an anti-black. I said, but I've come to to learn that any form of um, anti-blackness is ultimately a symptom of the system of racism, white supremacy. And that didn't go too well with anybody (laughs) but the host of the show. And so afterwards, when we were, like, greeting her and congratulating her on her book, everyone white ran for me. Like, they saw me walking up to her, and they immediately, like, took a left turn. And uh, that's it. Fungible. Fungible. I will not forget. I'll meet my line. Thank you, retired firefighter. Much obliged, Irie. I was all flummoxed um, because I was thinking that it was an F word that the white woman said to you, uh, rejecting the supplies. That's, uh, I didn't even have the context correct, but fungible. 
got it um much obliged that's yeah it's more i could say about that i'll i'll marinate on uh your experience uh white people are not ignorant about racism white supremacy you see it right there if they bump into a nigger who is a little bit less confused looks like they're trying to use a little bit of logic we she is dangerous gotta watch this one that is standard it seems anywhere in the world much obliged for your patience retired firefighter greetings to everyone you have a good memory mr renegade <laughs> uh yes uh, i was uh involved with the experience with the high school that's in that particular area uh that non-white people have been complaining about black people have been complaining about uh, Basically, what took place was uh, the game was already we uh, we meaning uh, a staff that had been at that high school before Miami Northwestern Senior High. They called us back because of an incident that took place uh, at the school where they uh, uh, the uh, school district uh, got rid of the principal, uh, the head coach and most of the staff uh and uh we uh a staff that i was a part of that was there before uh we came back uh in the fall in the fall of 2007 that game was already scheduled uh to be played in dallas texas uh it would have been our second game of the season but ultimately what it ended up being theoretically was a national championship game it wasn't you know scheduled as such but that primarily what what it was because we were the number number one high school in the country football wise and south lake carroll was number two in the nation at the time and matter of fact uh they hadn't lost a game in about i don't know four or five years uh of course our team was pretty good also uh and we uh went up there uh most of the uh, young people that uh was on that air flight that was the first time they ever was on an airplane so that gave us a good chance to basically uh uh, solidify our our connection with those young people by you know their first time going on the air flight. I remember one one uh, young fella. Well, he was he was young, but he wasn't small. About six five, three hundred pounds. He was kind of nervous about getting on an airplane, and I and I said, "Well, don't worry about it. You and I go down together." You know, and we laughed about it, that sort of thing. But. Uh, yeah, uh, and we also, we visited Dealey Plaza. Uh, I would figure most of, most of us know what took place on November 22nd, 1963. Uh, and, uh, I was surprised that they were quite interested with that murder scene, uh, that took place with the president at the time. Uh, we stayed in a, we stayed in a hotel. We stayed in a hotel in Dallas, Texas. 
on the shelves, on the little uh, uh, diner desk that's right in between the two beds, everybody had a magazine, full-colored Mac, full color pictured magazines. Uh, on the cover, it had a it had the the white quarterback, who is actually the head football coach at that high school now. He was a quarterback, the starting quarterback back in two thousand and seven. He was on the cover. Uh, one of the cheerleaders and some other white person uh, was on the cover of this magazine. Basically, the article in inside the magazine was giving a comparison between that school and the area that that school is in and Miami Northwestern Senior High and the area it's in. And such in a way such as, well, uh, in our area, uh, most of the homes are are anywhere from uh, uh, five hundred thousand dollars to a million dollars, uh, that sort of thing. And uh, in that area, uh, most of the uh, uh, people have either Section Eight or uh, some sort of uh, uh, meager type of uh, apartment complex where they stay at. Uh, we have less than one percent of children that uh uh have free on the free lunch program whereas with that school uh over half of the children at the high school uh on the free lunch program that sort of thing so i was just sitting there looking at reading reading the the magazine uh i i my roommate was the quarterback's father who was the defensive coordinator and uh so i woke him up about four o'clock in the morning Woke him up about four o'clock in the morning and said, uh, "Hey, do you think you think our kids really understood on what that magazine was talking about?" And I found out the next day, the day of the game, that they did. <laughs> that was actually a motivating factor to assist us into being highly successful in that game uh, the next day. Uh, and so when I saw this art, I saw, I saw this, this article about, uh, that the, uh, you know, business as usual, uh, uh, at, at, in this area, uh, I wasn't surprised about it. And, uh, it kind of like bothers me in a, in a, in a sense where I see a parent, uh, who acts like they, they are surprised uh, about how uh, their child or children are mistreated. Uh, as a parent, also, we have to be very careful about where we subject our children to. Uh, you know, when, when you drop them off, you go to your job and they go to their job. But we must have the responsibility in making sure that the place of work where they are at is as safe as you can, you can, uh, have it. You can, you can, uh, as a choice that you make that is as safe as possible. And it gives the best chance that they can, uh, comfortably, uh, 
have an understanding uh, through learning and being educated, getting educated, educate, educated, that sort of thing. And uh, so that's the only comment I would have on the uh, the black uh, mother who was kind of like complaining about what was going on. So it's some surprise in some kind of way. Um, today, DCS program, uh, it was kind of, we kind of like cut short because of Mr. Clark was also had a, uh, a planned, uh, uh, Turkey was a Thanksgiving where you hand out boxes and whatnot with a Turkey in it, that sort of thing. Uh, I wasn't going to be a part of that personally myself, uh, but he, uh, was partially doing it as part of his, his, uh, campaign to be a uh, county uh, commissioner. Uh, I was going to, I was going to show a film featuring James Meredith. One of the main reasons why is because most of the, one would be surprised on, you will have a hard time finding something on a black male that was, uh, engaged into counter race, counter racist activities that lived, that lived from that experience. James Meredith is still alive. And if anybody was in a at risk situation on a daily basis, almost a minute basis, he was so. He is, I believe, 87 years old. And, uh, yes, and still, still alive, still living a life, still, still walking around, uh, Mr. Meredith. But, uh, I, I will show him next Saturday. Uh, situation on Malcolm X. Uh, I met, uh, the person that the, uh, the article was, was, Speaking about, I can't remember his name, uh, at Florida Memorial, he had a, uh, a, uh, uh, an appearance at Florida Memorial where he was talking about the, 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 uh, the documentary and different things. And, uh, there was a question and answer period. Uh, and so, you know, it was, it was, it was a good number of people that, that was there. And uh, we uh, all asked our questions and whatnot, that sort of thing. Uh, but uh, yeah, uh, the uh, the seconds. white people in charge of the FBI uh, knew on who were the killers uh, seconds after it took place. And that's all I have to say. Thanks. Thank you for listening. Thank you. They were in the room when it happened. They said they had undercover agents that they concealed and all the rest of it like they could have, you know, went about correctly uh, investigating and applying charges in this case decades ago. That's not what they wanted to do. Standard operating procedure. Uh, I thought that was the area. I I said we have to confirm, but I thought that was the part of Texas that you were uh, telling us about. The exact place. Things do not change. Uh, probably some of the same folks <laughs> no, involved with those antics with the magazine and such. When you all came out there to visit, probably the same folks. We're not going to have critical race theory in the schools and waste of time and reverse racism and all the rest of it. So good to be able to put. They them. were they were so they were so nasty, Gus. 
as far as hosts are concerned, that the referees came to us and said that they were glad that we beat them. <laughs> the referees in Texas. <laughs> Deep in the heart of Texas, indeed. Such a disgrace. That would be just more reason, in my view. Congrats to the young folks for their win and all. But, man, that would be another reason. Like, all of the athletics, especially football, like, I got to endure brain damage. And then that on top of it, all kinds of tackiness and trashiness. Like, yeah, I'm good. I'm going to protect my brain computer and uh, go do some hiking. I can do that by myself. Go look at the birds. They're not going to call me Nigra or any other names. Absolute disgrace. Um, much obliged, retired firefighter in Florida. Uh, Ghosts of Ole Miss, that's one pretty good uh, documentary uh, featuring James Meredith. That's in the ESPN 30 for 30 series uh, where they focus because Ole Miss won a national championship uh, in football the year that James Meredith so called integrated. Uh, but it talks about how they almost lost the season and all the rest of it. It's got lots of graphs. A plus. It's really, really good. Ghosts of Old Miss. Came, I think it came out in 2012. Uh, folks that we missed totally. Uh, if you have a hand up commentary to share, line should be open. May I be heard? Uh, Hello? Yes, sir. Uh, heard uh, both. Let the man. Uh, please let her go first. Much obliged, sir. Hello? Caller oh, I'm sorry. Okay, thank you. Thank you, sir. I'm very sorry. Um, thanks for taking my call. I hope everyone's having the best evening they can have. Um, the transracial adoption, that was, I guess that term was confusing to me because when I think of trans, whatever, you're usually changing into something else. So if these people were adopted by white people, were they changing to become white people? That's term is going to be confusing to me because usually transgender, you're changing from one gender to the other um, and then trans transformation just involves the change and as far as these people were talking, they were still whatever they were when they were, whatever race they were when they were born so and their white parents and I say tell them, I didn't hear them say my white parents told me, oh you're white now so I don't know what that means um in terms of the covenants and the neighborhoods that was very interesting and while i was listening i kind of looked up my area because i live in macon which is predominantly black and according to some article in 2018 predominantly low income and i know it's predominantly black not because of the article but because i looked up before i moved here but where I live, I live in Macon, but I have like a different Congress person than the majority. This person is white. They represent some other white areas. So this city has been divided. Um, and so I just thought that was interesting. I was like, what about my house? Because um, I live, I guess it would be considered diverse because I live across from an Asian person next to a white person, black people live around here, um, I guess they will consider it diverse. And according to this map that they have of making where they show, and this article where they show the neighborhood, my neighborhood is not clearly on this map because it's clearly not, it's clearly not low income based on this map. I know where I live. And it's so, that's very weird. I'm like, I'm 
I have to look into that, especially since the church that I go to in this area is a black church. And it's weird because there are a lot of white people that live in this area. But I have the church that I started going to. They had a talk about the history and they said it was black land and this and the other. And I'm like, well, how is this black church surviving around all these white people? So, you know, good for them. Um, I guess those were the main things that I wanted to discuss. Um, yeah, the food and activity deserts. I think I talked about that, the activity deserts. Um, yeah, they still exist, I guess. Like I said, they exist around here. Like you hear things pop up, but they usually a lot of times sponsored by. If they're made public, they're sponsored by white people. There's things for black people, but you have to know a black person and know a black person seems like to find out about those things. So thank you. Much obliged caller in Georgia. Again, not a coincidence. Uh, it is generally pretty deliberate. Uh, and that that's when, like when I talked about um, all of us, like we can study like our local uh, local history, state history, whatever it is, whatever part of the world that you're in, you can probably learn a lot about white supremacy, racism. Like, yeah, look at your house or your neighborhood and all of that just to see what kind of details you uh, you find out, you know, is, is uh, any sort of language in the covenant and even information on that church, how they got to be there so long in that type of area uh, with the population of white people like lots of interesting information probably held by a lot of white people frequently not always but frequently they will have lots of local information about the history of how they've mistreated the negras uh let's see the caller nine oh, i'm sorry i didn't i wanted to say one more thing very quickly about the food desert mm-hmm. in my zip code again i live in macon there are five i know of five zip supermarkets nice size supermarkets in my zip code and I think they're about maybe 10 or 11, seems like, in the whole city. So, again, that disparity where five are, I think, in my zip code alone. And, yeah. That's it for real. Thank you, sir. Right on. Right on. That is a bit. And that's another one. Not a coincidence. It's generally it'll be planned out so that the space where the black people live it's not going to be five, six, seven high quality grocery stores uh, in their zip code. It might be you have to drive for you know, a half hour or take five buses or some kind of craziness uh, to get a banana. We got loads of Skittles right at the corner store. Skittles, Cheetos, as many as you want all day long. Twinkies. Uh, let's see. The caller at 9029. Much obliged for your patience, sir. Uh, greetings, Gus, and greetings, callers and listeners. Um, thank you. Um, starting picking right back up from where you were just speaking about is uh, food, and it's one of the things that I've been working with my son on and the rest of my household, honestly, which is just trying to get people to eat less animal flesh, um, stay more focused on drinking the water. Um, it's it's been it's it's hard work, you know. Um, if my son has the least amount of money in his pocket. He'll still go out, get a Fontana sugar drink and come back with like a hero turkey sandwich and all this other stuff. And he eats a lot of, you know, and I've been trying to cut him back and not allow certain things in the household, um, such as white rice. 
Um, I know for some people it may not affect them, but I know for myself and other non-white people that I've spoken to, it, it has negative connotations. Um, that staying on the subject of my son, I, I was able to transfer him finally to a closer school, one of the better schools in, in Brooklyn at Bed-Stuy. And um, it, it was a very difficult task. And I did it by actually contacting Eric Adams' office. Um, they seemed to have immediately had uh, an impact in getting my son transferred to the correct school. And, um, and I'm not, you know, I'm not knocking Eric Adams, but I'm not really a big supporter in that sense, as far as, um, you know, going out and let's go vote for him or anything of that nature. But I was able to get it done by going up to higher powers um, which is something we speak about on the show uh, plenty of times. Um, as far as the the, uh, the the Rittenhouse verdict, it was a very difficult yesterday because a lot of people kept on talking about it, and I really, I think I I felt like I knew the, I think I knew the outcome already before things even unpacked. But it was very difficult to um, ignore the conversations and. I was trying my best to not get too emotional or upset or attached to it in that degree because um, it just makes it difficult to really think logically about the whole situation and understand that this is something that has to continue in order for the system to continue. And it will, it will be something that I am mindful of because I do see a lot of protests here in Brooklyn and I'm wondering what, what's going to happen when, if people do bring weapons and have some way to bring weapons and people come from out of state to come to Brooklyn to protest or come to New York city to protest about things. It's just, it's just the dynamic that I've been wondering about. And I'm wondering how other people think about that as well. Um, with that said, I'll mute my line. Much obliged, sir. Um, my thought process on it is, uh, those protests, I would generally avoid them. Uh, if anything, this would be, you know, a really sad illustration because he killed two white people. Uh, it's not like he killed, you know, some highly melanated folks out in Wisconsin. Uh, he killed two white people and was exonerated. Not even uh, shouldn't have even legally had this gun. He's not old enough. Oh, well, uh, I would be very mindful about that uh, at these protests, uh, whether it's the laws where if you're in a vehicle and they're protesting in the street and they run you down, you can't be prosecuted or this example, uh, the January 6th uh, white terrorist insurrection, uh, I just I think all of these events have the potential to be lethally dangerous. Uh, if I don't see where this is going to solve a concrete problem, like in a tangible way, uh, like in the very near future, I would not recommend being at these events where at minimum like. Oh, yeah, I could die. Like I realize that whether I'm five years old, 55, whatever. I could die. Police, beanbag, Kyle Rittenhouse, whatever. I could die and I'm all right with that. Already made peace with it. Everybody knows. Unless, same way I say at the end of the program, you came prepared to die at this protest and it's worth it. Whatever is going to be accomplished with all this. You've already thought all that through. I haven't seen any protests that would be worthy of me dying so I could go and stomp in the street and say, uh, hands up, don't shoot or, you know, whatever stand up fight back black lives are under attack they got a lot of catchy slogans but not worth getting shot or killed 
Other folks who dialed in with a hand up, if we missed you totally, proceed. Can I be heard? Henry in Chicago. Yes, sir. Greetings, Gus, and uh, greetings to all the callers and listeners. (laughs) Uh, As a young person who has a non-white black father and a non-white Filipino mother, I remember as a child I called myself biracial. And my father pulled me to the side and said, uh, you're not biracial because you don't have a white parent. He said that he's a non-white person and my mom's a white per- a non-white person. So I am a, a non-white person <laughs> and will probably be identified as black. So uh, he taught me at an early age that I was a non-white person. <laughs> so uh, that's pretty interesting how uh, people identify themselves as biracial black or whatever. But, you know, um, fortunately I had a father who would, who told me or taught me a little bit about racism, white supremacy uh, for, you know, as much as he knew about it. Um, John Cantanzara, the uh, current FOP president and uh, former Chicago police officer, uh, he was up for termination about four years ago because of insurance fraud. Uh, Apparently, Officer Canton Zara uh, was on medical leave and he was caught working at a nightclub in a north side neighborhood called Old Town as a security guard while he was on medical leave. So technically this is what is considered insurance fraud. So uh, that's what he was up for. But, you know, also he had other violations as well. Uh, working in the uh, Fuller Park neighborhood of Chicago, which is, you know, predominantly occupied by uh, non-white black people and one of the worst neighborhoods as far as crime, poverty, uh, and, you know, whatever uh, metric uh, you can give to non-white black people. Uh, But interestingly, he's been, you know, at that district for, more than 10, 15 years, and the crime rate has just skyrocketed. But, you know, obviously, Mr. Cantanzara is just there and to, you know, uh, practice white supremacy um, as a race soldier. So no need to reduce the crime rate in a highly, uh, in a neighborhood that has a lot of crime. And... The Malcolm X, uh, the exoneration of the killers of Malcolm X, um, you know, it's interesting how after 56 years after the murder of Minister Malcolm, uh, they have decided that, you know, these these gentlemen or these uh, people who were accused at first uh, were not the, the killers. And... What's also interesting is how a country like this, the uh, United States, that has you know some of the highest technical equipment, uh, takes fifty-seven takes fifty-six years to finally make this decision, and you know still yet, uh, if 
there were implications of the New York Police Department um, or, you know, other agencies that were involved in this. Uh, where are those people at who, you know, conspired to have this man murdered? And another thing, too, is, is that uh, I remember there was a book published a couple of years ago, uh, The Judas Factor by Carl Evans, who brought out a lot of this information. I'm I'm wondering why he doesn't get a lot of credit for it, because he wrote his book back in 1993, which kind of pointed out a lot of uh, the implications of, you know, the New York City Police Department and other agencies that uh, had Malcolm X set up to be uh, murdered. Because obviously, you know, you can't, you know, you can't murder uh, uh, a high, you know, a high figure like Malcolm X without the permission of white people. So um, I'm often wondering why he doesn't get a lot of credit for it. Because from, from my understanding or from my recollection, he's like one of the earlier people uh, who have uncovered this information about the assassination of Malcolm X. So, but that's all I have on you, my line. Much obliged, Henry, in Chicago. Reading is more important than watching television. Uh, I think I might be social media friends with Carl Evans. I have to check my friends list to see, but I think we might be friends. Maybe. Uh, but I did read Judas Factor, and that is such a good book. It has lots of footnotes uh, in it, and it even uh, provides an international uh, component to the assassination, I mean, white supremacy, racism, making it clear, FBI involvement, Pro, all of that. But even the international component uh, and saying hey, you might even have CIA and military involvement uh, in helping to coordinate all of this because uh, Malcolm X did so much international traveling, you know, going all over the continent and France and all the rest of this, speaking at Oxford and all the rest of that. And even prior to <clears throat> his sojourns abroad uh he had been protesting uh at the un uh over the assassination of patrice lumumba uh when you have an international understanding of white supremacy racism that will also generally racist will focus attention on you like uh oh we've got a nigger who understands the entire planet is a plantation that is a problem we that that that's not niggerish thinking niggardly thinking uh, much obliged, Henry, in Chicago. I think, uh, was it the officer, uh, Cantazana, probably mispronouncing his name, uh, continuing the legacy of Joe Burge uh, in Chicago, all kinds of deception and incorrect intentions as a race soldier, certainly not to clean up areas with high crime and problems for black people. Like, psh, that's nobody's intention. Uh Let's see, except I'm going to get rid of that no good Lori Lightfoot. Get her out of office. They said he's going to drop out and run for mayor. Like, man, come on. Uh, let's see. Other folks that we missed totally, if you have a hand up. May I be heard? Caller in Florida. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you very much, sir. Greetings to Gus, the host the listeners and callers. Uh, I want to first mention on the uh, the segment about the adoption. It um, sounded like the, the non-white child. I think uh, 
it, it sounded like it was a lot of confusion there because um, she was saying that, you know, uh, it, it most likely sounded like the white parents, I guess, didn't want to believe her on the uh, the experiences she was having. Um, and it's just a, uh, a sad thing for a non-white victim to experience at that age. Um, but it is the reality. Uh, and the, the principal that was at the, the school where the white children was uh, terrorizing her. Um, that's been an interesting story as well. I like to know what updates are coming up with that soon. And the the Frankenstein segment, I've been trying to get, uh, gain an understanding of that. I think that was a non-white student that um, that spoke out against it because it seemed like that may have been trying to get used as a metaphor or assembly or some type. Um, and there was a, a story that I had uh, that I had uh, discovered a couple of days ago, and you know I thought about that segment or that that sound clip with President Obama. You know, where he's saying, uh, you know, they're better than we are. Uh, There's a a white girl named Jalen Crooks. Um, And there's an article where she's trying to encourage a suicide on a black uh, female teenager at 14. I I think they're both 14. And that's pretty bad, pretty racist. even the principal came out calling it racist where the white girl is on social media calling the black female. Her name is, I guess, Nia Segan, I think, uh, calling her, calling her a dark chocolate bar, uh, saying you are so effing dark. The student says in the video, you can effing rot in hell. You dark ass you know, and nigger, um, dark ASS chocolate bar, get the F out of here. Kill yourself right now. No, kill yourself right this time because the person, the victim apparently had a history, um, of trying to, uh, kill herself. So this racist says cut deep enough this time or effing tie the rope higher. So this person's picture is, uh, all over the internet, if I could word it that way. Uh, Jalen Crooks at Prior Lake High School in Minnesota. So that's, um, a recent example of these, uh, white, uh, race soldier teenagers being dedicated, unwavering in their dedication to white supremacy. And, and that's all I, I have to share. Thank you. Black mental health. We've talked about suicide uh, on the program quite a bit the last uh, like week or so, especially neutralizing workplace racism. But we've said a lot of times this is like very deliberate as well uh, to get black people to become self-destructive, even suicidal, uh, but to erode our mental health. Uh, this happens in the workplace, school. I mean, wow totally disgusting i'll i'll post uh via this is in minnesota i think uh so tacky so tacky 
Uh, let's see. The oh, they held a rally. See, they held a rally uh, for the victims in this case too. Like, uh, yeah, I wouldn't want to be at that either. Uh, did we have anybody that we missed totally? Uh, we had a hand up uh, that they needed to share before we wrap up. Anybody we missed completely? Grant, I assume we got everybody. I thought I'd miss the hand before we get ready to wrap up. Uh, I guess if we did miss you, uh, you could dial in tomorrow because we'll be here for the Global Sunday Talk. Uh, as I said at the beginning, I'm looking forward because, or for many reasons, but one, well, two, uh, two of the, the top reasons, Minister Malcolm X, to see if they heard anything about that in the, you know, different countries, or is that something that just got totally, you know, We'll talk about that later. We got to talk about Kyle Rittenhouse, you know, white teenage killer got free, uh, which happens every day here. Uh, that's one, two in Austria specifically, as I said, they were going to have a lockdown that was exclusively the non-vaccinated people in Austria. It's going to be locked down. Now, I think uh, if you've been listening, African 1884, he's been with us. He's in Austria. He said, you know, they were generally been very compliant. They haven't had tons of protests about, you know, the vaccine is a hoax and we're not going to take it and all that. People generally have taken it. Um, I think from I looked online, they have very high statistics. Like I believe it's over 80 percent in Austria in terms of the percent of the population that's vaccinated. Much smaller population, obviously. But, you know, uh, but anyway, this the first part of this week, they were going to force the unvaccinated to lock down. Apparently, COVID-19 infections spiked enough that they said everybody's got a lockdown this is supposed to last i think they said like 20 days or something like that but they are doing mandatory requirements mandatory vaccines for everybody beginning in february of next year so that is one reason among two among many really uh why i'm very eager i'm hopeful we'll have him with us uh tomorrow to get more details uh just to see how this is evolving over there and other you know other information as well but very important minister malcolm x also understood the importance of analyzing thinking about white supremacy racism as a global problem uh and then sharing information with victims in different parts of the world to try to come to a permanent solution to the problem tomorrow that'll be again 3 p.m. Eastern 2 p.m. Central 12 noon Pacific uh, safety man I would encourage no unnecessary travel if you are going to be you know driving or whatever else be very safe uh, it's been a very dangerous terror filled year so uh, I expect more of the same heading right into the wacky holiday season and we got Negro Friday coming up like get to go and elbow somebody in the head to grab a gift like uh try to avoid as much of that as you possibly can uh as we just try to get through all of this safely sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy in addition to being sober if you're going to be out and about for any reason be very alert if you see anyone they're being rowdy loud exit uh, this is not a time for verbal confrontations with strangers you should be thinking this could be Kyle Rittenhouse deliberate metaphor and or this person could have an entire armed gang at the ready if you didn't leave your residence prepared to kill and or die 
exit. That's what you want to do. You can call enforcement of officers or family, whatever, uh, as you are vacating the premises. Want to make sure I got in. Uh, I guess gratitude to Henry in Chicago's dad for talking to his offspring about racism, white supremacy. Like that is black self-respect. Don't want to let your child be going around confused and not understanding. I'm I'm biracial. Did you all know that? I'm biracial. No. And then to even be specific, reason, explanation, you do not have a white parent. You are not so-called biracial. That's what we expect parents. And then they'll say that if you talk to your children, you can't talk to your child about racism. That's talking to your child about racism right there. Just giving them accurate under uh, accurate information so they can make correct choices. At least he wasn't saying uh, I'm, I'm a biracial uh, black male. Do you know that? Or I'm a I'm a multiracial black man. Confusion is lethal. Uh, if you're going to be driving, you're sober, buckled and not on the cell phone, uh, just trying to do the small things that we can to minimize contact with the uh, was it Carranza and Kyle Rittenhouse and all the rest of the folks uh, badge or no who could end our life in like the next three seconds. Uh, all of that said, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person no name calling no gossiping easies <clears throat> that we can include on our 10 stop mr fuller's 10 stops that we can include on our regular you know just things that we do in terms of our counter racist code i'm not going to name call another black person not going to participate in gossiping about other victims either Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Drink more water. Eat fewer Cheetos. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's your brother. Problem? You're a victim. Yeah. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Yeah.